Hey, this is Jill from the Container Store. Oh. Is there something wrong? I just thought a virtual designer would be a cool robot. I could do a robot voice if that helps. Maybe? Hi, I am Jill. Let's design. Nope, absolutely not. Regular voice, thank you. Yeah, I'm not good at impressions. Enjoy free virtual in-home closet design and up to 25% off closet systems with the Container Store's custom closet sale. The Container Store, where space comes from. Sorry I'm late, everyone. It's all right. The meeting's just getting started. Are you in your closet? Yeah, it's the quietest place. <laughs> ah, not the roomiest, though. Getting closer with your closet these days? That a uh, dinosaur costume behind you? What? No. <laughs> the Container Store's custom closet sale is here to help with up to 25% off closet systems and free virtual in-home closet design. Who wants Sean to put on the dino suit? Really, guys? The Container Store, where space comes from. You are about to enter the Shockwave Skull Sessions podcast on shockwaveskullsessions.com. And now your host, Bob Nalbandian. And we've got an amazing episode for you guys. We got the legendary Black Sabbath drummer Bill Ward joining us on this episode along with our uh, Shockwave Skull Sessions regular, Mr. Monty Connor, head of A&R for Roadrunner Records, as well as David Teds. We've had David on a previous episode, I believe the uh, Ye Old Martin episode. I like to uh, refer to David as the uh, metal guru. I don't believe I've met anyone that knows so much about classic hard rock and metal than David Ted's. He joins us here as well, and we're going to get right to this because this is the longest Skull Sessions episode yet. It's uh, going to clock in at, uh, wow, uh, about uh, two and a half hours. Uh, so a kickback, uh, crack open a beer or two or three, and enjoy this episode. But before we do get started, I want to uh, let you know this is the Shockwaves Skull Sessions podcast. It is available at roadrunnerrecords.com slash skull sessions. You could uh, listen to all the episodes on that site. You could also uh, download each episode uh, into your computer from that site. You could also check out the Shockwave Skull Sessions podcast on iTunes as well as several other podcast directories. If you go to iTunes, just go to the iStore, type in uh, Shockwaves. You'll see uh, both my podcasts, the Shockwaves Skull Sessions as well as the Shockwaves Hard Radio Podcast. Subscribe to both of them. And if you want to send me an email, please do so. I do uh, read and answer all emails personally. You could uh, write to me at shockwavesskullsessions at gmail.com. Uh, I do want to mention that Black Sabbath, uh, actually Sanctuary Music, Sanctuary Universal, uh, just reissued the Black Sabbath Paranoid CD. And by all means, this is a must-have CD for any Black Sabbath fan. It features the entire Paranoid CD remastered, as well as some incredible bonus tracks, some great rare tracks, some great outtakes, some amazing stuff. Also, Sanctuary Universal will be releasing the uh, debut self-titled Sabbath record as well as Masters of Reality and both those also in a, a special bonus package which will also include uh, several rare outtakes, some great, great stuff. Uh, it's, it's just amazing to hear some of these uh, tracks, how they were originally written 
and how they uh, were transformed into a metal classic. Some great, great stuff. Definitely check that out. And uh, definitely check out Bill Ward's website at uh, BillWard.com. That is the official Bill Ward website. Some great stuff there. You can also check out his radio show through the uh, website. He's got some links up there. I believe the direct link to the radio show is www.bbc.co.uk slash radio one. That is the number one slash rock show. So uh, check that out. But let's go ahead and get right into it. Bill Ward discusses the uh, first decade of Black Sabbath. All the albums uh, from the debut up till Never Say Die. Bill talks about the recording process of all of the albums, including the turmoil they went through with a lot of the records in the mid-70s. And toward the end of this podcast, Bill and Monty go off on a lot of the uh, newer metal bands. I got to tell you, man, I have never met a a musician, or I should say a a classic rock slash metal musician that is so in tune with the uh, metal scene today. Uh, Both Bill and Monty talk about a lot of the uh, new releases from bands like Lamb of God, Opeth, Slipknot, Mastodon, and many, many others, as well as uh, Gene Hoagland and other drummers. Some great stuff that's toward the end of this podcast, but uh, without further ado, let's get right to it. This is the legendary Bill Ward, Monty Connor, David Teds and myself, you are listening to the Shockwave Skull Sessions. This is the great Black Sabbath discussion. We've got uh, Monty Connor, David Teds, and the legendary Bill Ward. What is up, gentlemen? Hello. <laughs> this is Monty speaking. Um, yeah, I've been on a bunch of these podcasts before, but never with the artist on the line. Um, so I got I got I have to admit it's a little nerve-wracking speaking having the artist there while you're discussing his record. So it's going to be a bit of a different experience especially someone like Bill who's just one of my heroes. I mean I I wouldn't be in the music business without all the great stuff Bill has done and it particularly thrills me as well because I read, you know, Bill in magazines and I know that he's a huge metal fan and very very up on modern music. So it blows my mind that he listens to bands like Slipknot and Typo Negative that I signed. So this is pretty special for me. Well, I think it speaks for all of us. I think we all were influenced by Bill's works. Uh, I'm sure David has been as well. David, you've seen a Black Sabbath since the very beginning, correct? Well, first of all, I want to clarify what Monty said. What he what he really means is he's nervous because usually when he discusses the artist's work, he gets to badmouth the artist at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, I've seen I've seen every Sabbath tour from Paranoid onwards. I saw the the very first tour in Birmingham, England, at Birmingham Town Hall. Most of the rest of the ones in the seventies I saw in Detroit at Cobo Hall. Yeah, yeah, and then uh, the ones afterwards out here in Los Angeles. Right, and I I loved them all. This is this is something I've been looking forward to for months, and uh, let's get right into it. Let's let's start from the beginning, Bill. Why um, don't you kind of start start us off before the uh, first album came into play, and how the band developed? You know, coming from Birmingham, how you, Tony, Ozzy, and Geezer got together and uh, created Black Sabbath. Tony and I, as I'm sure you guys know, we'd already been working together for some considerable time. And the bulk of our, the music that Tony and I were playing was uh, of a, uh, a blues rock feel uh, with some jazz involved in, involved as well, you know. So we, we'd had our roots uh, kind of planted in um, inside of uh, jazz or more classical music and, and definitely American blues music. 
I think that came to a head when we continually listened to um, the Blues Breakers album with John Mayle and really literally he got, I mean, I'm sure I've probably had at least five or six copies of that album where, you know, we can we were listening to that a lot. I think with Giza, um, it's, it's more like I was attracted to him as a person before he played a note. You know, Tony and I were from Aston and, and so was Giza and so was Ozzy for that matter and um, it's a pretty industrial area, you know, kind of a rough and tough rumble area. But um, Giza was, uh, I was attracted to him because he looked so different in, his, in the way that he dressed, in the way that he, the way that he was. You know, I, I really took a real liking to the guy and, and I hadn't even spoken to him yet, you know. He was a, a person of interest, I guess, you know. It didn't have anything to do with the fact that he used to wear a dress around town, did it? No, 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 that kind of lighter. No, he was just, uh, he dressed just, just really completely different from any from anybody that I'd ever seen before, you know. And he certainly stood out, especially in Aston, you know. He's looking like that, looking like he was looking. You you were almost beckoning to, uh, to be beaten up or something, you know. But um, we we met Skis playing uh, in the uh, nightclubs that we that we uh, that we visited and also played in ourselves. Um, I met him in the kind of the green room, if you like, of a of a nightclub, and that was where I really first officially got to know him. And uh, he was just um, just incredible. I I, I instantly felt uh, involved with him. You know, it's just there's something about him that was just mag- really magic. And it, it, up until now, he was still playing rhythm guitar with a band called the Rare Breed. So the eventuality was that we all knocked on Ozzy's door some months later, uh, looking for a singer. And the same thing happened with Oz for me. Um, I'd only known him for about 15 minutes, and I really liked him a lot. He's like that, you know. He's a very, very likable person, you know. And that was we we just got together and we we jammed out to just some uh, like what would be the favourite blues jams of the day. Uh, I think we were still playing things like oh, just a couple of things from uh, John Mayles Blues Breakers, Hideaway, and um, there was a couple of other things that we were playing. And then we were picking up on um, Ainsley Dunbar's warning. Uh, so we were, you know, we were just like, you know, kind of like grooving like that, you know, and trying to, you know, to try to play in clubs and, and what have you, which didn't actually work out very well at all. So. Monty, didn't you send over a uh, a song sample of Ansley Dunbar's warning, correct? Yeah, I'm, Bill, I'm a big, big fan of like the whole UK blues boom. I, I love all that oh, stuff. Oh, okay. And I know that. Yeah, I know basically that you guys were, like a lot of bands at the time, were heavily influenced by that, and it really wasn't kind of until you guys wrote the song Black Sabbath that kind of shone the light for like the future of the band. But you can definitely hear the blues influence all over the first record on tracks like Warning. So anyway, through through Warning, I actually went back and discovered the Ainsley Dunbar Retaliation, and so I have the version of that song as well, where I think Oz, um, I think Ozzy wound up changing the lyrics, right, David, on that? Yeah, yeah, I think he, he changed them slightly to make them more ominous, really. Right, right. But yeah, no, I'm a big Ainsley Dunbar Retaliation fan, and, and through through warning, that actually got me to discover that band years later. Mm, okay. Yeah, we, we liked, we, I mean, we liked Ainsley, and it suited us, you know, that, that pace seemed to suit us. It left plenty of room for Tony. It just, that was actually a, like where Tony would perform a solo, and that solo could run maybe 20 or 25 minutes, you know. Right. Keep in mind that we were playing in, in the clubs in Europe, and they, they literally wanted like eight shows a day. So things that we were 
playing uh, always ended up in huge solos or a drum solo or a bass so just to make up the time you know right and that's because that's like that's nearly eight eight hours a day of, of playing the show you know so yeah and you guys basically wrote the paranoid record in a situation like that like while you were playing in germany just you know during sound check and so forth doing all those shows that's when you basically wrote that record correct yeah a lot of the ideas did develop uh, it was at the big club in hershen which is in switzerland at nib uh, was born. Uh, we we pretty much, you know, gradually put that together somehow. There was on on one occasion we, you know, we were so kind of I don't know uh, lethargic I guess. Uh, you know, it, it, it was quite monotonous uh, playing. You know, from twelve until one in the morning, and that's twelve noon till one in the morning. Wow. <laughs> and we, you know, sometimes we would uh, get a little bit too high. On one particular occasion, we were uh, really very, very high. We just had some, just got some new, uh, new Afghani black come in, you know. And uh, anyway, we were, we Terry and myself and Ozzy, we were on stage ready to go, and we couldn't sit find Tony. And Tony came in to the room, dragging his guitar by the neck. We thought mm, that sounds looks like trouble already, you know. And uh, anyway, we got in. We got him on the stage, and then we we start. We figured we'd start out with NIB, but we couldn't get off the first uh, eight bars. We kept going round in a circle. We forgot. Everybody forgot the song, and um, you know, man, we were we were destroyed at that point of the day. It's you know one o'clock in the afternoon, and we we're so gone. And Tony was looking at us, going, uh, "What's the next?" What happens next, you know? So all we were playing was da na 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 da na da na na da na na Nobody knew what the what had to pull out, you know. But we we you know we found it. We went out and we played it down. So that was pretty cool. But it was hilarious. I mean, we were absolutely busting up, you know, because we were just so gone, you know. But NIB, yeah, was written. The song Black Sabbath was actually written at the Aston Community Centre, and that was written in the morning. I think it was about 9.30, 10 o'clock in the morning, and uh, and Tony came up with those huge riffs, and uh, we all more or less knew where to where to put it, you know, where to go. You know, we we by this time we were we'd been together for a little while, and so we reacted to each other, you know, and uh, and we were getting tight. We were always we were getting tight all the time. We were playing nearly every day together, so. And if we on the days where we weren't playing, we were all together anyway. So, right. you know, we never really like, left each other's side. <laughs> did it feel when Go you wrote this on Black Sabbath that like, okay, now we're onto something like this is new, this is our future direction? Was it this yeah. huge moment for the band, pretty much? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I felt, I felt, con- I had no idea what it was going to do or where it was going to go or any of that. But I felt like we, a real sense of accomplishment. I thought, oh my God, you know, we really. We've really got something great here, and I, and I really felt again it was going to be great live. We were going to do it live, and uh, you know when we did that ending, that ending used to be quite long. You know, it kept building and building and building and building as much as you can do with, you know, um, with uh, drums and bass, so that we could support um, Tony. You know, on that end solo there. It was a big sense of accomplishment. Was there like a scene in the Aston or Birmingham area? Because I know, I mean, obviously a lot of the classic bands, you know, members of Deep Purple, Zeppelin, you name it, came from that area. Was there uh, clubs and places to play around there? Or did you have to go to London? I know you went to Germany. Like, you know, a lot of bands, including the Beatles, had gone to Germany. Did you go to Germany first and then come back? Or did you kind of build up a local scene in the Birmingham area? Or how how did that work? We started to build up a, a following, if you like, 
up in um, northeast uh, England. Uh, that would be around Workington, uh, Whitehaven, Estatria, mm. uh, all the little towns in the Lake District and just north of that, Whitehaven, Carlisle. Primarily that following came from an original band that Tony and I were in, which the band was called Mythology. And so when we went back up there as uh, Earth and as Black Sabbath, we were already had quite a following. You know, they, they really, really loved all the bands that came up that were playing, you know, much harder stuff. You know, they, they liked metal a lot. You know, they, it was a very underground metal thing that was going on uh, in northern England, in northern northeastern England at the time. You know, the work players used to play. But we started playing the London clubs, uh, I think, in uh, 69, I would say. 68, we were still playing in Germany and, and in uh, north northeast England. But we started playing the club. The big break, of course, for us was... Being able to play, um, we and we actually played at the Star Club as well. By the way, on the Raper Barn, which was where the Beatles had played as well. That was a kind of a feather in the cap, you know. That's kind of like a chevron, you know. It's like, oh yeah, and we played the Star Club, you know, and right. all that stuff. So, but it was it was nice being in such a hallowed place, you know, where so many other artists had played. Um, the Marquee Club in London was our. When we went there, I know we were all kind of a bit. I think I, I think we were. Um, a little bit scared, a little bit kind of like, oh, you know, what's going to happen? And we really were um, quite, um, I don't know, quite scruffy. We were, <laughs> our um, taste in clothing and the way we looked was a bit um, suspect, to say the least. You know, we, we, we showed up and John G, who was the club manager, the club owner, the boss, uh, looked at us and went, oh, no, you, we can't have you, you know, this is like ridiculous. But, you know, it was the real deal, you know, because we... We really were actually very, very poor, and uh, we really didn't have any clothes or, you know, I think the best we could do was a leather jacket or a, a pair of jeans with our ass hanging out of it, you know. So, I mean, that's what we were like, and we showed up, and um, and then we then we fired up, you know, and that was kind of like before even our first gig. It was like uh, before the first time we even played that night, you know, when we fired up, just checking our stuff. It was like, we're too loud, you can't do that, you know. But we came through all those musician nightmare barriers, if you like, and we were regulars at the Marquee Club, and uh, of course that was a, an enormous launching pad for us. There were places in Birmingham as well that were very good, you know, underneath the uh, railway lines, and uh, there were some good clubs where you could actually play and play your ass off and play the, all the all-nighters as well. So, yeah, there were those places to play. Well, this is David. It was, was Mother's Club uh, in Birmingham at this point? Mothers was the most established club. It was in Erdington in Birmingham, and it was the most yeah. established club. One of the one of the bigger bands to go through there was Cream. Yeah, Candy did a stint there. And a matter of fact, I think uh, I think that you, David, I think wasn't it you that, uh, or maybe I've got it wrong. I thought that you'd done some work with Candy too. But yes, actually, yeah, I did a best of album for um, for EMI a couple of years back. I have to say I was ably assisted by Monty Connor here, too. Monty's probably even a bigger Can Heat fan than I am. Oh, yeah, okay. they're one of my favorite bands, period. Like, right up there in my top five with Sabbath, so, yeah. Oh, great. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I, I love them, too. They, the thing that impressed me the most was uh, they were doing their loading in the afternoon um, in Erdington, and they had big 18-wheeler trucks, and that impressed the shit out of me because at that particular time, I can remember... We'd done, we were always watching all the other bands, you know, we, we just wanted to know what was going on all the time. And uh, when Candide showed up with the 18-wheeler trucks, it's like, oh, my God, you know. 
and they were very, very loud in that club. Mothers was um, where we all went, I guess, if you like, all the heads went, and that's where we got to see, you know, uh, everything that couldn't be played anywhere else, you know, like Cream. Uh, I'm sure the 10 years after were down there at one point, and uh, we had, a, yeah, there was a whole scene down there, you know, and that was the best club to go to outside of the marquee in London. Yeah, who, who remembered that then? Who, talk, who said Mothers? David. David, David. David said Mothers? Yeah, but I was born in Coventry, Bill, so I've been over here most of my life, but I remember some of these clubs being advertised from when I was a kid. Okay, you got the edge. <laughs> I got yeah. the edge. At this point, Bill, was in around this time that Tony got this offer to join um, Jethro Tull? Yeah, yeah, because we, we'd been playing around, you know, and I know Ian, you know, liked Tony's playing. That came as a, as a real... Um, Oh shit! You know, you just like when you feel like you're accomplishing something, and and then um, Tony. Uh, but you know, it was right, and you know, we all, you know, I mean, we all wished him well, you know, even though it didn't feel very nice. But um, he had to go and do what he had to go and do. But I think um, it was at a time as well, and I think uh, you know, I, I'm being fair to Tony. I, I, you know, I'm not trying to be. I don't want to. Um, I, I have a tough time sometimes speaking on behalf of the other guys, you know. But I think it's pretty common knowledge that Tony was already on his way, if you like. He was already uh, finding himself and had been finding himself as a musician for some considerable time. So I think for a moment there, uh, it was like, oh, you know, let me go to Tull. But, but Tony had already was already like who he is, and so to go to Tull and be the lead guitar player in Tull. I could see how that could quickly turn sour, you know, because he was already established. So it's like, hey, you know, I'm on, I'm on this road, and then he's he like almost like taking a diversion and going to to work with Ian Anderson and, and the rest of the guys, and then you know, finding out just like, hey, you know, I really don't, it really doesn't work here for me. Right. So we were very relieved um, when he came back. He came back with a a whole bunch of input about how the way that they went about doing things and the way that they you know, worked in the day and uh, really got things done in a very organized way. And um, being somewhat undisciplined and uh, unorganized ourselves, um, we took to, well, I'll speak for myself, I, I took to it somewhat reluctantly, became uh, far more willing um, after a short period of time. I could see how it was how we were starting to feel and look and sound and, and we were tightening up as a band, you know, so he came back with some very good stuff. Right, so he yeah. learned. He, I guess he learned from seeing the discipline that Ian Anderson had with the rest of the band. That they rehearsed on a regular basis. That you know they took it as a real serious enterprise. It helped, I guess, bring some mm -hmm. professional attitude into Sabbath after Tony seeing that. Yes, but very right. much so. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I've read like every Sabbath book on the planet. I know David has as well. Probably you do, yeah. Bob. Yeah. So yeah, this is stuff yeah. that I've read as well. Well, let's get into the uh, the uh, first record. I know uh, Universal Sanctuary just uh, reissued. Uh, the Paranoid record, and I know the others are uh, uh, at least Masters of Reality, the first album. Yeah, I think those first three are going to be coming out. Yeah. Right. Uh, now, I know I've, I've had the opportunity to hear some of the uh, demos and stuff from them. Real, real interesting stuff, and I think it's great the fact that this is the first time. Uh, I don't know if David's heard these before, but the first time I, I think most people in public have heard any of these old demo tapes and uh, the work tapes and let's talk about when you first went in the studio bill and did uh, the first record and how you hooked up with warner brothers and what that experience was like i think at the time before we went into the studios uh 
we were working with Jim Simpson, you know, he was our manager. And um, for me, everything was kind of almost like a blur. Uh, I was really enjoying playing gigs. Uh, we all were. We would uh, go into the office and say, well, you know, is anything going on? And we had to, um, I believe, I think it was Tony Hall uh, Enterprises. Uh, I think Tony was in, 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 uh, inside the first album. But Tony Hall was a DJ, and I really liked him. He came from Radio Luxembourg, which was kind of a, you know, a free kind of rock station. You know, they played a lot of really good stuff, too. I kind of liked, you know, where he was coming from. But it was more of a blur. It was like, uh, oh, and then suddenly it all came out, and you've got, like, two days or three days or, or whatever uh, at a studio in London. And it's like, oh, okay, you know. I can't remember... You know, there was like a step-by-step -step kind of... I'm sure there was. I'm sure there's a lot of work behind this. But I was uh, I was not aware of it. All I remember was going into the office and listening, and it's like, oh, you know, now we can get you some studio time. There was all this wheeling and dealing going on. When we arrived at the studio, I was uh, completely impressed. You know, um, I played in a few studios before, but they were very small studios in Birmingham. And now we were in London, and... Uh, I think our bands, I love our band. You know, we, we just got in and it was just like, um, oh, it's like, we, it's like we lived in the studios, you know. It was almost like we were just destined to be in the studios. We showed up with all, our, with all of our show, laid everything out, you know. Uh, there wasn't a whole lot of figuring out sound that I can recall. It's like, okay, play your bass drum, okay. Yeah. I think we just laid it out like we would do a show. The band was very much in a in a touring feel, so going into the studio and trying to record, there wasn't enough time to, for, at least for me, to to go. Oh, you know, how do you play in a studio? You know, or what do we need to work out here? You know, just do studio prep. For instance, like I would now, I would like prep for the studio and things like that. So there wasn't any of that. This was a real raw live band that was going into the studio, and somebody had to get it. You know. Somebody had to record that. So um, I didn't know, you know, anything about being quiet or things like that. I know that I was on my blats and some of my crashes. They would run through the meters and and run hot, you know, underscoring the actual snare shots, you know, in, in technical terms for a second. And, uh, you know, when Tony fired up, it was just like, you know, the whole studio would shake. And, uh, you know, it's like, okay, you know, how do you, how do you capture that? Recently, I made a quote in a... In another interview, you know, uh, in hindsight, uh, we ought to have uh, lassoed the whole band and just pulled it in and hoped that the mics got something. And I think that that would be my best way, you know, to describe uh, what it was like trying to do that. But somehow, some way, Tom Allen and Roger Bain uh, did a, a, a very respectable job. And they were able to, you know, get us on record. I was amazed, actually, by um, the cymbal sound on uh, Ainsley's song, on Warning. And you can actually hear some of the jazz, the jazz drops, uh, both on uh, Black Sabbath, the, the song, uh, and Warning. It was quite amazing that they got that, that kind of uh, uh, finite precision, you know. So, I'm sorry, get, I don't know if I'm talking too long on these questions. One thing yeah. I always wanted to know about that record is, Ozzy seems to be singing in a much deeper voice than he did later on. Was yeah. that something conscious or accidental? How did that come up? You know, he's just singing in a lower register than he would later. Well, it's probably where we put the keys as well, you know, and also our stringing. And, you know, so we changed our stringing as time went on, and, you know, a lot of things moved around. But that was the nature. 
that was the nature of the last four or five years of, of some of the bands in the clubs where um, he had almost this very strong uh, blues voice and um so it wasn't it wasn't shaped into you know where paranoid was yet you know it still had a we, we it's like we're still coming off the street you know and i think that that was that's what you might be hearing it's a very good that's a great observation and now paranoid came out shortly after that did you actually um have paranoid written around the same time as the uh, first album we we, uh, we already had some songs for paranoid you know it's almost like uh, the writing was going on daily you know I think to to set the stage, the band never left each other. We we literally were with each other every single day and for very long periods of time. So if we weren't on, if we weren't on the stage, we were in the car, we were coming back from somewhere or going somewhere. You know, Tony would always have a bounty full of, of riffs and what have you. You know, we were we were ready to build our rhythm sections and do whatever we had to do to support each other in a musical sense. We took a small break in, uh, from touring and we went down to one of our favourite places where we do a lot of writing, which is in the Mono Valley in Wales. And um, we went to a, a little house that we, that we used to love. We still, well, still do. And that's where we wrote uh, some of the heavier songs. Uh, we wrote uh, Sweet Leaf, uh, for, for sure, in, in, in the Mono Valley. I think War Peaks was basically came out of jams. You know, Tony would have that huge chord, and then I'd do that kind of jazz hat, if you like. And you know, we we were just putting the blends together as we went along. The the only time that I remember where it was a concentrated effort, as if to do an album, was when we were in the Mono Valley. I guess we might have spent maybe ten days or two weeks there. So again, we were all living on top of each other. Lyric ideas, all kinds of things were flowing, melodies, drum parts, you know, great bass parts. Uh, so it was all being shaped. And I'm not exactly sure when we recorded Paranoid, to be honest. I know it was in uh, 1970, but I'm actually not sure when it was recorded. But that was like about, I think we had five days or six days on that one in the studio. And that was the same um, team yeah. as the first record, Roger, Ben, and Tom Allen? I, I'm sorry? Was that the same team as had done the first record, Roger yeah, Lane and Yeah, Tom it, was, it was Tom and, and Roger again, yes. Now, it's interesting you mentioned a, a Sweet Leaf. Uh, again, listening to these uh, remasters of Sweet Leaf, to hear the way the band evolved, uh, lyrically especially, it sounded like, you know, Ozzy put lyrics together and it was about a man and a woman getting married and then it evolved into a you know song about marijuana <laughs> uh, but, and, uh, geezer was so cutting edge with the lyrics i mean take a song like war pigs for example no band had took such a heavy political stance anti-war stance up until that song uh, did you see that not just musically but lyrically that black sabbath were becoming this real groundbreaking rebellious so to speak rock band I couldn't see it. <laughs> I, I just love the music, you know. Um, I don't, you know, to be quite honest, I don't know whether we, any of us could see it. I know that Terry was writing some of the best things he's ever written in his life. Mm. I'm not saying that he doesn't write good things now, but the first three albums, those early years, were, were yeah. just outstanding. But I, I just wasn't conscious of what we were doing. I think what happened... When I started to become a little more conscious is when we started playing War Pigs on stage in America. And especially coming to the, the Vietnam War was still, of course, you know, raging away. And, but it was, it was time, an ending was in sight in Vietnam. 
And so when we played war pigs on stage, we, we had uh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of vets who used to come right down the front and they would be in their wheelchairs and, you know, amputees and guys that got totally fucked up in the war and, you know, God bless them. And we would play, you know, with all our heart that song and uh, and they would just love it. They just loved war pigs. And that's when I realized we were having a tremendous impact throughout, uh, and a political impact and an impact emotionally on, you know, it's through the live live audiences uh, that were showing us that and how, how it was affecting them, you know. Mm. Well, um, so, yeah, I'm sorry. No, as I say, I'm just as, astounded by your, your memory, Bill, about all this. And I kind of want to go back. I know this is around the time, David, you saw the band in England, correct? Yeah, I saw the, around the time of Paranoid at uh, Birmingham Town Hall. And this sort of goes into something I wanted to ask Bill, because if you look in the the center fold of volume four and that shot of the band from behind there that's birmingham town hall right that's correct that's absolutely correct i mean that's about 25 rows deep with a little balcony so going from i i've always wondered what it must have been like from going and playing places that size so there are just several hundred people to come in over to the states and play in suddenly for 18,000 people mm-hmm. yeah this is definitely a transition <laughs> Um, yeah. Fortunately, when we first came in into the states, uh, we were playing, you know, like maybe four thousand, five thousand seaters. We and we got adjusted to that. We got used to that. It felt like we were in a club, and um, we were playing, you know, all of Great Britain's um, largest theatres by then, and also in Holland and and Germany and uh, just everywhere in Europe. So we were starting to get to be like really big gigs. And there's almost a feeling of that that same great feeling that you get when you're playing in the clubs. And so I would feel, as a drummer, I would feel uh, perfectly um, comfortable in front of 5,000 people. At first, for me as a drummer, it was an uncomfortability. I had to depend completely on uh, microphones around my drums. I now had to depend on a PA, and I also had to depend completely on monitors. Um, So it became different. The energy was still brilliant and uh, the band I, I felt was just great and I was having a blast too but there were some other things that were challenging me you know especially when I first started playing you know 5,000 and above 10,000 15,000 I, I thank God for the cruise you know we we had great crews and it's the men that you have on the road with you that, that really do make the day you know God bless them now, Bill, your first tours in the States, that was with Grand Funk, right? And the James Gang uh, were some of the early ones? We play with the, we play with the James Gang up in the... Um, uh, oh, God, I forgot, I forgot his name. Joe um, Walsh. What was the name? Joe Walsh. No, not, not Joe. Joe. Um, uh, God, Bill Graham's uh, West... Fillmore. Uh, Fillmore, thanks. Right. God, Fillmore, Fillmore West... And so, um, but we went up there, and of course, one of the gigs that we did was with the James Gang, and they were headlining, and uh, I got a kick out of that, you know, and uh, I like the James Gang. We also played with Arthur Lee and uh, and Love, mm. and that was another one where we supported the uh, we supported the show. So, but with Grand Funk, we only played with them one time, and that was at the Forum. We went down pretty well at the East Town Theatre in New York. And I think everybody got the word, you know, so they kind of got it, found a slot for us uh, supporting Grand Funk Railroad. So 
that was our first appearance at the Forum, and that was 1970. So that was in Los Angeles. Wow. Now, Bill, you yeah. had mentioned, I remember the first time we had interviewed you a, a few years ago, uh, my buddy Mark Miller and I, we had talked about some of the shows at the uh, Fillmore East in New York, and you had mentioned how the reaction, people were like, they didn't know what to expect. They were just sitting down and didn't know what to expect. And then by the end of the show, you know, you got the people all riled up. And you said basically Tony had to like, you know, bang on his, his guitars and you were just, you were doing anything you guys can to get the crowd riled up. And by the end of the show, you just won them over. Was that the reaction with a lot of places when you first started? People just didn't know what <laughs> what to expect. And then by the end of the show, they were just like, wow, this is amazing. Yeah, it, it was it was a little bit like that um, in some places, but it's it's amazing how all that how all that spreads. You know, it, it spreads like wildfire. In New York, it was was a little bit cold, just like as in London, in the sense that uh, let me let me change that word. London, I, I don't use London, but in England, everybody'd seen you know like the very best of everything. So I think there was an expectation sometimes from the audience. It's like, oh, well, show me something, you know. And there was times when um, the audience were literally just sitting there, and we weren't used to that. We're used to an audience that participates. Uh, that's when headbanging first started. We, we used to interacting with the audience, you know. We used to saying, you know, fuck you. And so there's a whole lot of that kind of stuff. In America, it was, it was kind of like that in the beginning. It was a bit sticky and a bit cold. But um, the audiences, especially once the East Town Theatre was done, the audiences were really warmed up to that. I mean, by the time we got to the Forum in Los Angeles, there was no problem, to be honest. We just went on stage and everybody just went fucking nuts. It was almost like we were established before we got there kind of a deal, you know. But we didn't know it, you know. We were kind of like the last to know. Like when somebody mentioned Cobo Hall earlier, and that had to be one of our favourite gigs, Cobo Hall in Detroit. And of course they knocked it down there, but Cobo, playing Cobo, man, was just like, it was, that's like dynamite. And the crowds in Detroit were just insane. I mean, you know, I mean, all over Philly, you know, where have you, in Texas, I mean, they're all nuts down there. They fucking love heavy metal music in Texas. I'm curious, back then, obviously Black Sabbath didn't get any radio play, at least in the States. And very little media support. Was it just a tour? I mean, you know, you were selling tons of records. You were playing all the big places. How did you guys get your following? Can I cut in from a, a listener's point of view here? Yeah. In Detroit, at least, on the FM stations, which were at that point, you know, they weren't programmed. It was what the DJ wanted to play. We heard plenty of Sabbath in Detroit on FM stations, you know, I mean... Especially, you know, War Pigs, Paranoid, Sweet Leaf. That, that, yeah. That's one of the reasons why Detroit used to go so crazy when, uh, when Sabbath showed up. Monty, did yeah. you, were you growing up in New York today? Because, I, I mean, I grew up in L.A., and I don't ever remember hearing Black Sabbath apart from maybe Paranoid uh, when I was I never heard Sabbath on the radio. Then again, I was a little bit too young back then. Bear in mind, guys, that the first Sabbath record that I got as a new release was Never Say Die. So I came up in like 77, 78. I'm a little bit older, uh, a little bit younger than David. You know, I was like six years old in 1970. You know, the period we're talking about. I don't remember listening to FM back then in the mid-70s. You probably remember it was all AM radio, Monty, uh, all the hit, and it was all top 40 hits. You know, Elton yeah, no, all that I, kind of stuff. And first FM station I remember here in L.A. was like K-West and the old KMET. They weren't playing Sabbath, but maybe early on they were. were, were you, was FM station actually playing a lot of Black Sabbath back then, Bill or David? I, I can't. I, I don't remember. You know, we didn't hear a lot. 
to be honest. I think that I think it was just like the standard promotion where you know you get a little bit of airplay, you know, when they advertise the gig. That's all I know, you know. It just seemed like everybody knew Black Sabbath, and we spent years and years and years on the road. We played everywhere. I mean, we went through every town and and in every county, as far as I know, except Alaska. You know, we even played Hawaii. I mean, we you know we played everywhere in America. I think one of the things was the morbidity of the American press or the morbidity of the American people. It kind of helped us in a way because a lot of people thought we were like that, you know, a bit dark and a bit, you know, they weren't sure what to expect. So I think that that had some initial impact on mothers and fathers. And I think that the kids, uh, you know, were wanting to see us more because mom and dad were absolutely terrified of us. You know, it, it turns out that, you know, it wasn't like that. And the kids just loved listening to, uh, you know, loud, loud rock and roll, you know, that was rough around the edges, very raw bands. I was a very raw band. Playing down in the south of the uh, U.S., like the Bible Belt back then, how, yes, how was yes. the reaction there? I mean, I'm sure you must have had a lot of protests. Yes, there were. Do you remember any of those, or do you have any great stories about touring? Uh... In some of the places that we played at, we had to be... Um, we were confined to the dressing room. You know, there was a police cordon outside the dressing room. And we were only allowed to come out when it was time to go on stage and time to go back into the dressing room. We weren't allowed to come out or mix or socialize in any way. And they wanted to tame the beast, you know. They wanted to, the police wanted to make sure. That, but that, that, uh, there were incidents like that in the South. Um, uh, we had situations where, on several occasions, the mayor of certain towns... Uh, would stand on, we would be, literally be on the freeway waiting for us to come in and they would stop us from entering into the town because they thought we were Vikings, you know, they thought we were there to rape and pillage and, you know, destroy and, you know, and, and so on and so forth. You know, that, that whole thing had, uh, had amplified so much, you know, and, uh, I think once people realized that we, we just wanted to come and play rock and roll, you know, and play, play our asses off, you know, that we really thought the world of our fans, you know, I think there was a lot of stuff that our fans loved. There was a lot of sincerity in Sabbath's music and a lot of, at least for us, it was we were playing honestly. And I think that was felt at a, at a real bosom level in each person, you know, and it was like, oh, yeah, you know. You know, because I've heard so many times where people will talk about Black Sabbath and say how much it helped them to get through certain periods of their life and so on and so forth, you know, which is a fantastic gift to receive from another human being. But we, yes, we run into all kinds of problems, especially, you know, Alabama, Georgia for a while. Atlanta wasn't too bad, but Georgia, Mississippi, you know. Right. South Texas was a little bit rough all the way through across over to Padre Island. Were you ever actually arrested? Did it ever get to that point? Oh, yeah. Yeah? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we were, we, we were locked have, down and confined. From what I heard, they had, they had signs in front of the jails in Alabama that said, Welcome Black Sabbath. <laughs> oh, I love America. That's why I live here. <laughs> I love it. I, I just love America, you know. I know there were so many people and didn't like a lot of the things that we were sharing or saying or saying in our interviews. We weren't trying to directly push out, you know, stub the nose or we weren't. I, 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 as far as I know, I, I was never consciously aware that I was trying to rub something the wrong way you know i just wanted to play the next 
the next song really like nowadays as you know bands at least the, the big mega bands like a black sabbath would put out a record maybe once every three years here you guys were putting out within a two-year period you put out the first what two three records i mean yeah. 1970 <laughs> had you know the debut and paranoid masters of reality and then you know volume four followed shortly after and during that whole time you're on the road so it, it must have been a whirlwind i mean you didn't really have a, a chance to like kick back and take a deep breath and 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 absorb everything yeah was it just insane back then or how is that kind it, of how it was it was it was just a, a lot of work we would get into the plane after the gig and then we'd all fall asleep we were just like babies we did everything caught up with us you know we really didn't stop uh, until we started volume four. It was almost like, oh, the pace slowed down just a little bit, you know, just enough for us to catch our breath and start on a, on a new album. But, you know, you know, from 68, uh, all the way through until probably 1972, 1973, you know, we'd worked, and we'd done nothing but work for four solid years. There was no time off, you know, we might have got Christmas Day, but we, we, all we did was play and play and play and play. But we love to play too. We, that was our passion. So I've always regarded Black Sabbath as a uh, as a phenomenon rather than a band. The energy that came from it was just horrendous, absolutely horrendous. You know, you got 21, 22, 23 year old guys with so much energy. So in that sense, it was a you know a real force uh, of uh, of nature more than of human beings. I think. Now, was it the uh, label that was pushing you, Warner Brothers, to get back in the studio, or was it something you guys wanted to do just to keep the momentum going? Oh, no, it, it, it would have been us. You know, we, we pretty much called the shots. One of the things that we didn't do was collaborate with the record company. Our managers would say, hey, listen, you know, da-da-da-da-da, and Warner might want this, or Foods might want that, you know. But there was so much, so many opportunities for us at that time. We, we, we freely wanted to develop more and do more things and and to continue to tour was there ever you know just coming from the record business this is something that interests me during the making of all these records there was never like an a&r guy around or the record label coming down to the studio you were just completely left to your own devices the entire time yes wow i had heard from someone that worked at warner brothers is that uh, all the people at Warner Brothers literally feared Black Sabbath. They would refuse to meet the band. And this guy I, I had known finally like met with Geezer and they became you know real close. And he's like, Black Sabbath are the greatest, friendliest guys. But he said that the reputation Black Sabbath had were like you were just these evil, monstrous, demonic people. Mm. <laughs> and this is at oh, your own it's label. True. It's true. <laughs> No, you know what? Well, we got on real well with Ghostsmith and, and a lot of and a lot of the Warner Brothers staff. We were all, whenever we were in Los Angeles, we always paid a visit to see Joe and and just hang out, you know. And Joe was always very courteous and uh, you know very outgoing. So I think our, our relationship with uh, with Warner Brothers was um, was friendly and very um, healthy. Well, David and Monty, was there anything you wanted to add before we get into like the Volume Four uh, Sabbath Bloody Sabbath era? We kind of skipped over Master Reality, but it really. You know, to me, those first three records, it's really like one record. It's like one period. Of, you know, the first three records, you can kind of lump together in that way. It really wasn't until volume four that started being experimentation and sound. And, yes. you know, to this day, even though I adore the first three records, there's something about volume four that just is the record will always go on to play. There's just like some element. It's just got something to it that the first three don't have that keeps dragging me back. Yeah. So I think really transitioning from Master reality into volume four was a huge step for the band creatively and also bill it was the first record you guys had done outside of uh outside of the uk 
<laughs> in, in yes. Los Angeles probably brought you a little bit closer to the label at that point as well. Yeah, with Volume Four, can I can I say one thing about Masters? It, yes, Masters of Reality. Please. Um, Please. It's my all-time favorite album. It's the one that kind of is the um, is the cherry on the on the top of the cake of the, of the first three albums. I think it's really masterful, and I I can see how our plane was in uh, 1969 when we were first starting to put our songs together for uh, for Black Sabbath. How much the band had improved in its individual playing abilities, and also the the songs were just so um, I don't know they were just uh, like so experienced. They 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 were so well crafted and. Uh, it happens to be my the children of the grave, of course, being the, the the highlight of the of the album. You know, I mean, it's it's just I can't stop playing that. I love Black Sabbath because it has our anthem in there. You know, which is Black Sabbath, of course. Uh, I like Paranoid because I I had so many good memories of making that album. And but I, Masters of Reality is the is the real crowning glory for me. Yeah, after that, after that period, it took on a whole new which seemed like we almost took a, a completely different course at a completely mm. different change. So. Bill, have you heard those CDs that Sanctuary unleashed, like the rough mixes of stuff from those sessions? Did you get copies of that stuff? I heard them in last August. There was a song that was part of that that you guys had never recorded. I don't even know the name of it or if it has a name, but I know that David and I have heard it, and it was like the one Sabbath track original for back then that never got recorded. Do you remember this track? No, I don't, I don't know what it is. I don't know. I didn't take too much notice of the of the stuff that was that was that, that came in with the um with the you know the ad takes and things like that i listened to it briefly but i don't recall a whole lot right now it says early u.s version i don't know if these were the songs but there were songs like the haunting step up death mask mm. uh that said uh, are you aware of this david but, on early u.s that, version of volume four yeah the yeah. the from what i understand is that because of the difference in the situation in publishing between England and America was that in America, the publishing company decided to give like these subtitles to certain sections of the songs so that the band would receive extra publishing money for this. Have I got that right, Bill? Yeah, I think that might sound like, I think you nailed it. I, I think that yeah, might be they, what that is. They did these on every record. Luke's wall. Yeah. Um, Luke's wall, yeah. straightener. Um, a bit of finger, every day comes and goes. Yeah. Well, the one thing that was different on the first album, and the British version had Evil Woman, and the U.S. version had Wicked World. Yeah, much better choice. Oh, yeah. say. I, right. well, well, Evil Woman World. was the only other time that Sabbath had recorded a cover song that had made it onto a record. Yeah, um, I, I, I didn't I didn't like what we did on that, that song. That was kind of... Um, I think that would be a uh, doing something that you don't want to do in order to try and get your name out, you know, 20 years old, 22 years old, trying to get your name out. The other song, The Wicked World, to me is the song on the first Sabbath record that sounds most like the old club days, like Warning, like it's got a little blues and jazz in it. Yeah, it sounds like a very old song, like older than most of the other tracks on the record. It was the first song we wrote, and uh, we originally wrote it in Tony's... Uh, living room and uh tony had that that really cool riff you know but we had that's the, probably the most that would be the closest to what we were before wicked world you know but wicked world is a very very good jumping off record that's a good that's a very good example of our starting point and it was indeed our first song 
Now, after you guys had written the song Black Sabbath and you had, you know, and it had kind of shown the future direction of the band, what was actually the next track to come out of you guys after Sabbath? Mm, God. Would it have been NIB, maybe? Uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure, man. I, I, you know, I, I honestly don't know. I'm sorry. I'm surprised how much you do remember from uh, back in those days, Bill. It's amazing. Some things are very clear, and then there's other stuff which I'll just bump into and just go, oh, my God, and I have no memory at all. <laughs> you know, so so far I've been batting pretty good. Yeah, absolutely. You know, but, but thank yeah, you. Yeah, i got to say, I'm impressed as well. You seem to have very vivid memories about all this stuff, you know, mm. like really, really surprising. Okay. One last question, guys. Bill, was you you made your singing debut on Master Reality, right, on Solitude? Was that you? No, that's us. We put him through. Um, we put him through some special stuff. That's another thing about Masters. We were starting to use some of the effects. You know, we were getting a little bit bolder, a little bit um, stepping out just a little bit more. You know, it's like, oh, what's this and what does this do? You know, we were, we were very interested in what, how things work in the studio by the time we did Masters of Reality. So, and that was yeah. the first record that the band had self-produced, correct? Um, well, we had we had a pretty good say right from the very beginning, but um, you know we wanted to know more about things. Uh, you know, we put in that we put that organ. I hope it can be heard. We put in a, I mean, a real uh, organ, uh, a little church organ, and uh, we put that in in the um, in this. I'm not sure which sections. It was the bam, 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 bam in Children of the Grave. Yeah. Um, you know, so there's all that going on. You know. It's, so we were starting to add other things, you know, a little keyboard here and there, and yeah, things were turning around. Uh, was change like when oh. you guys wrote changes and decided to put that on the record? Was that were you worried about what your fans would think about a song like that? Was there any trepidation, like God, have we gone too far? What are our fans going to think? I don't think I don't think we had any fear of what anybody might think. That's one of the things. I don't know whether it's arrogance or whether it's fearlessness or I, I just I'm not sure what that is, but. If we liked it and we really thought that it was strong and powerful for us, then we'd just put it on the record, you know. I think that's probably why maybe some of the record companies might get worried sometimes as well, you know, there might have been some fear there. It's like, oh, because they just do whatever they want to do. And uh, But we, we needed to have that freedom. We needed to play what we wanted to do, you know. So so Changes was, you know, just another, very much a part of us. It's very true to ourselves. Even today, I mean, we go right across the board with so many different things. I mean, some of Tony Iommi's classical guitar work is just fucking superb. Absolutely. Also, his piano playing, which nobody's, I don't think anybody's heard at the public level, his piano playing, his classical piano playing is excellent. Everybody is so versatile and can move. You know, the one thing that connects us all is we like it dark. That's been a, always the constant groove. All of us love to go to flat fifths, and, you know, we just love when, when it goes dark. Black Sabbath is is so misunderstood because you were a very experimental band and people always compare you know you know bands like Zeppelin that did Zeppelin three or even Deep Purple or whatever but people always consider Sabbath with the staple sound which is from the first three records you know everyone has that you know uh, it sounds like Black Sabbath that real doomy sound but you experimented quite a bit I mean especially from volume four on like you say with songs like Changes and particularly with with Sabbath Bloody Sabbath I mean some of the songs you know which we'll get into later that and Sabotage I mean you were really doing all sorts of different styles of music what did it kind of bug you that uh, people always associated the Sabbath sound to like the first three records you know what I mean Um, I think a lot of people traveled with us through 
you know, maybe some some we lost some people after the first three records. Maybe we did, um, but uh, I think the majority of people followed us through. Then the only reason why I can validate that is because our audience never diminished right through to our final record, our last days, if you like, as the original band. We were still filling up all the houses anywhere in the world. You know, I'll just use that as the example of, uh, and validate the fact that people travelled with us through all those albums, you know. I mean, it, I know we may be jumping around a little bit here right now, but uh, most of the guys, as you know, Monty, I, I know quite a number of guys in, in today's hard, hardcore metal, and um, the first things they say to me, man, the first things they say, that a lot of their influence was uh, come out of heaven and hell, you know, which I know we, we went up there right now, but, you know, and uh, and the and the latter Sabbath albums, you know, they, they like, you know, Never Say Die or, you know, Technical Ecstasy, you know, which surprises me. I'm kind of like, you know, but that was their time when they were young kids. That was what they listened to, so, you know. And, yeah, uh, no, so there's definitely a whole generation of kids these days that, to them, Black Sabbath started with Heaven and Hell. You know what I mean? That yes, was like the yes, era of Sabbath yeah. they knew, absolutely. Yes, so, anyway. Volume four? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Can I just ask Bill be, before we get to Volume Four if if, if you've ever heard um, Pantera's version of Solitude? Yeah, yeah. Was it Solitude? No, Planet no, it was Caravan. Planet Caravan, David. Right. And they also did Hole in the Sky. What was it? What was the track? Planet Caravan from Paranoid. Yes. Yeah. Caravan. That's what I mean. Planet Caravan. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I I heard it um, some years ago and I loved it and but I haven't l listened to it a whole lot since. In fact, all of the versions, all, all of the bands that have covered our music, even No Doubt with Iron Man, I, you know, uh, I think I think I'm, I think No Doubt did Iron Man. I think Gwen did that. I'm sure, I think she did. But the, all of that, uh, they are so complimentary. The, the, the way that they play how, uh, and interpret the songs, and uh, it's just so complimentary. It was really Sabbath cover mania in the '90s when, uh, if you remember, Columbia had put out two records: Nativity in Black One and Nativity yeah. in Black Two. Right. Sure. Those were amazing records. Like, yeah. to me, those are the pinnacle of like bands covering Sabbath. Yeah. Bill, uh, while we're in the yeah. same era here, you remember the record Live at Last, which I believe really. was recorded on the. All right, I was just curious, David. Maybe you know this, but I know there's like a song on on that record that you launch into that I've never heard before, and I don't know what it is to this day. In one of the long medleys, the, I think in the Wicked World medley on side two. The sometimes I'm happy, sometimes I'm sad thing? Yeah, what what is that? Is that on Past Lives as well? Because uh, I know Past Lives is basically Live at Last remastered. Yes, that, it, yes, it would be on Past Lives. I have to be honest, I've never listened to it. Yeah, I've it's never like a two and a half minute piece of music that sounds like it's a cover song or something, but I, I would never be able to figure oh. out what it is. Yeah, I, I don't recall ever listening to Live at Last. I, I kind of discounted it because... Yeah, I felt like it was um, a little bit of a rip-off, you know. Yeah. If I'm thinking of the right album, I thought, you know, well, you know, why are we doing this, you know? I'm not exactly sure what that is. I know, I know it came out, but I don't know where my head was at the time. But I, I don't believe I've ever listened to it. Bill, I, I've always yeah. kind of wondered why Sabbath didn't, at the time, ever put out an official live record because Live at Last was really kind of an import, almost import slash bootleg if, if i'm not mistaken but you know of yeah. course in the 70s you remember the big influx of live albums from you know deep purple made in japan humble pie performance you know even frampton comes alive and kiss alive of course those were the records that have essentially really broke the artists uh into yeah. mega stardom what was there a reason black sabbath never did put out a live album during that time 
beats the crap out of me. One would think, you know, I guess for me, you know, I do. With all of our recordings, I think our recordings have been very good. But when I compare them to our live sound, and when we go on stage and we have a real good night, uh, you know, it's just like God. It's it's so different from the light, from the actual recordings themselves. So it's always been a, a little bit. Of, I've always had a production source, but I guess just like other musicians too, where um, a bass drum <clears throat> didn't quite sound right, or you know, it was the best that we could do in the recording studio. But live, it's a whole different thing. I have. In my private collection, and only because I I have to have it in the sense of um, I have all the I of the last major tour that the original band did about four years ago now I think or three years ago at least I have to keep the the show of each night mm. and um, I have them locked away in a fireproof safe in a very safe place but I utilise these discs to find out. You know, really, uh, if we if we ever tour again, I utilise these discs to measure the energy, to measure where I was at, where I was playing, and so they're, they're basically my own informational discs that I use as a drummer to make sure that you know everything's on my end is going as it's supposed to. And I, the reason why I'm saying this is because I have live albums that sound so fucking good. The probably the most outstanding one that I have right now is when we played in Prague about three three and a half years ago, I guess. And it's just it's just outstanding. I just I'm just blown away by the by what we did. So I don't know why we haven't done a live album. You know, up until when we did the um, the reunion album, you know. Are any of these recordings well, you're going to uh, possibly release in the near future? You no, know, I, I I think I would I, I have to keep them for private use. You know, they, it's something where I where I use them to uh, look at each track and find out, you know, if things are speeding up or to me- just to measure accuracy and so on and so forth. They're my own private working discs. So I would never dream of, you know, having these, you know, or suggesting to the other guys to release these, you know, these are, these are our own private, you know, work-associated uh, discs. Gotcha. So, yeah. Okay, though, because the three of us are planning to show up at your house later this afternoon so you can play all these to us, Bill. <laughs> That's all right. I'll put the kettle on. <laughs> if I remember rightly, from a, from a circus magazine in the mid seventies, I thought the live at last tapes. They were obviously recorded about seventy two or seventy three. From the, you can tell that from spirit on them. Uh, it's for a live album. It was going to be called Fire on the Mountain. Does that sound familiar, Bill? No. Uh. Uh-uh. Uh. No, I don't recall it. You guys I, are yeah. sharp, man. I you always collected uh, videos back then. I know now a lot of them obviously have been uh, reissued on DVD, but I, I was astounded how many live videos you had but never recorded the live album, like the Live in France from uh, 1970, uh, the Never Say Die tour, and uh, so right. many others. And you know, even stuff you did like on Don Kirshner's Rock concert. I mean, there were some amazing, amazing performances. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I, I like the Dunkirchner show. Very cool. Very cool. So, uh, was there anything else you want to touch on Volume Four before we uh, move on? I think one of the things which uh, it was an important turning point for me with Volume Four was um, for the first time I was um, I was really, 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 really feeling the effects of um, of my drug use. So I think that sure, you know, I got high and everything just like everybody else. But on Volume Four, I was um, I was going into deep water. In the studio, there was almost like a lot of um, wanting high tonal qualities. 
you know, because that, that speed, man, it makes you want to, you know, get wants to tighten everything up and, you know, get everything just clean and tight. And, and I can feel that every time when I play volume four, I can I can hear where, where I tweak my drums a little more than I would have normally done, you know. I think the songs are outstanding. I, I, I just love... Um, it's, it's part of where we were. I think it's an honest album. I just think there's some really ni- nice ideas on there, nice tags. Snowblind, of course, you know, and um, help me out, guys. I'm, uh, we're all looking uh, huge. Tomorrow's I love it. Yeah. Under the Sun. Yeah. Would you like to hear the Under the Sun story? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so, so we're trying to get Under the Sun sorted out, you know, and for some reason... I couldn't lock up with the guys. It was the first time ever I couldn't lock in. And I know why I couldn't lock in. Um, it was because I was way, way, way too high on cocaine. But the uh, it ended up, the session ended up where we ended up in a London studio uh, for some reason and we were trying to lock it in. You know, it's like, let's get under the sun for God's sake. And um, Tony had some, you know, kind of strange twists and turns guitar-wise. And I just wasn't locking. And um, I sat on the studio floor with uh, another extremely famously guitar player. I better, better not mention who it is. And we just sat on the floor in the studio and did a piles and piles and piles of cocaine. And uh, while I'm trying to figure out what to, you know what what to play on under the sun, and um, it was just it was just a nightmare track for me. Uh, but that's because the nightmare was starting for me uh, as far as my. Uh, Definitely, with my hardcore drug use. That was the first time that I was basically sent home. It's like, God, but I didn't have a home to go to at the time. And uh, even though we were in London, and that particular time I ended up going to, down to Giza's house and just laying on the lawn outside with my wife, not knowing where to go or do or anything, you know. But I kind of shook it out of Giza's, and then um, once I once I got cleaned up, I was able to I was able to nail under the sun in, in literally you know like within an hour or something, but uh, yeah I really was I started to, I I really fucked up on that one. That's my so that's I, my worst memory of that album. I wasn't aware that the sessions for that record had actually moved to London. So was that no, the only song done in London was under the sun? Yeah, I think it was. I think it was. Uh, you know, we were still trying to get the track. It was a great song. You know, the irony of it is that I love Under the Sun today. We've actually jammed it a few times in the last five years, Very and Tony just Tony just does it to tease me, you know. He'll start playing it, and uh, he just does it to fuck with me, and uh, you know, <laughs> we're mean. <laughs> but he knows how much how much that cut, you know. It's just like, oh god. But we, I just jam in with it now, and I just jam in like like it was just yesterday that we recorded it, and it sounds really really good sounds really really good we've never put performed it but we we do jam into that so the song uh, snowblind the uh, lyrics pretty much lyrically captures the essence of the recording process huh were you guys was everyone doing cocaine at the time was it just well yeah it's it's, it's difficult for me to say that everyone was doing it but there was quite a, there was quite a bit of substance abuse going on right yeah it, it was also a time when we had literally taken the bull by the horns and what I mean by that is in the sense of production, we had Spock Wall, who was a live sound engineer. Right. Spock was on the sessions. And our manager at the time, Patrick Meehan, had showed up as well. And he was trying to, you know, get things sorted out uh, in the studio. 
so we were all in there trying to, you know, figure this thing out and how was it going to shape, you know, where we were going to go with it. I was just going to ask, when did uh, Don Arden come into the picture? I'm not sure. Don came in, uh, I think, in the late 70s. It was something that I think that he, he may have always wanted to do. As much as I was courteous to Don, I actually didn't want to be managed by Don Arden. So we were, Black Sabbath was never managed by Don Arden. Yeah. I was going to say that there's a, a reason on volume four that there's a dedication to the great cola company of Los Angeles. Yeah, I think that was Osborne's idea. <laughs> it was, it was, that was either Osborne's idea or Butler's idea. Yeah. That's great. So, you know, kind of says it out loud right there, but um, we were kind of off the tracks on that album. It surprises me how great that album really is. I, I love Wheels of Confusion, two bass drums, you know, moving along. The two bass drum thing, uh, finessing two bass drums, started in Masters of Reality and continued on. And uh, that's where Geezer and I were now pushing on 16th notes and uh, and even up to 32 and 32 notes, where we were actually, you know, starting to really open that up. And especially on Wheels of Confusion, there were parts where we just were laying in something where we'd never gone before. It was brand new, you know, and I, 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 I still to this day, I love the feel that we had on there, and Butler and myself, we just, um, I, could all, I could call him Geezer, I guess, but Geezer and myself, um, I, I, I really like what we did as a rhythm section. We were definitely, we were definitely tightening up even more. Hey, Bill, I was wondering what, uh, during this time, how were, how was the band during, like, social settings? Did you guys go out and do, like to public events because I mean Black Sabbath were never the rock star kind of band as you know the Stones yeah. were the celebrity type or the, the Zeppelin or whatever but did you go out to like the Rainbow or to the, the different bars or uh, any kind of social events and how were you perceived as uh, uh, to the public back then? Yeah we would go out uh, occasionally but mostly during volume four most of our time was spent behind closed doors uh, you know with the windows with the drapes drawn and you know just quietly going in and out of each other's rooms and that kind of a deal you know i'm coming over now okay so it really was dark i mean the music <laughs> kind of set the setting of how you guys were living life huh yeah yeah we, we started to you know kind of or we were all together you almost in this uh almost almost in a climate of uh I don't isolation know, free, not only isolation but also in uh in like free spirit or you know we all the clothes were off at that point. Nobody, nobody wore clothes. You know, we would go from room to room, and uh, everything. All of us were very out. You know, the whole thing was very out, and uh, you know, and including our wives as well. You know, so it was almost like a, a 1967 hippie commune. And I, and I hope I'm not. I mean, I might, when I say that, you know, I'm not being rude to the hippies. It, it almost felt like that, that we, we we come to this kind of weird place where we felt like we all needed to take our clothes off and walk about, and, and everybody, you know, it was like yeah. that, you know, just that kind of yeah. that kind of atmosphere. But socialising uh, a little bit, but not too much, you, you know. Uh, I know for myself, I, I didn't like to go out too far, and if we did go to the Rainbow, I was usually, I was usually pretty fucked up, so I'd have to, I'd like to come back, you know. We stayed very tight on Sunset Boulevard. I think we were living at the time in uh, in Sunset Market, you know. When, what was your association with other bands of that era, say like Deep Purple, Zeppelin? Uh, was it close-knit? Did you guys hang out a lot together? Because Sabbath always was kind of 
seemed kind of on their own in a, in a way. At least that was my perception. We uh, didn't really socialize with Deep Purple. Uh, we knew Bonzo. We knew the guys from Zeppelin, you know. But when we were doing Volume 4, we it's almost like we were kind of on a desert island, I think. I don't recall us having a whole lot of interaction with a lot of our musician friends, um, but we knew many, 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 many bands at the time. And, uh, and of course, we did socialize with them. We got high with them. You know, we were just, well, you know, we got pretty crazy, to be honest. But So we did have a lot, a lot of uh, association with other artists. However, during Volume 4, I don't remember that, you know. It, it, I even feel, as I'm talking about it right now, I even feel... Uh, somewhat isolated from it, you know, in that, in that period. I know that things became very different with the next record, and I know, you know, things really turned around again. And I think it was because we had to go through Volume 4. We had to do whatever Volume 4 was, and we all had to go through that the trip. We had to do the trip, if you like. Mm. Did you feel that helped with the creative process, though? I, I, I wouldn't think so. I wouldn't think so, not with Sabbath. Because we can, we could all fall out of bed right now and get together and bang something together and just like play its ass off, you know. And uh, wherever we are right now, I think our creative process was was strong enough to actually come through the amount of um, stuff that was being done from a drug sense, from a drug point of view, that actually would diminish our, diminish us, you know. Having been in recovery now for years and years and years and years, in hindsight, I can look back at, at what uh, the cocaine actually does and it actually diminishes a person rather than strengthens a person sure. you know we actually did really well to actually get that album out well you mentioned how it changed on the next album let's get into the next album sabbath bloody sabbath was there anything yeah. else david or, or monty you wanted to mention before we get into it or yeah okay. I, I'm, right. I'm looking i'm looking forward to discussing sabbath bloody sabbath because it's my personal favorite yeah it's one of mine as well well we got the tony had the killer riff as usual and uh, we did this in uh, in a castle. We did most of the rehearsals in in a castle in Wales. I heard it was haunted. Yeah, well, you know, he's, he was haunted by Tony Iommi. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? It's um, it was it, it, it was haunted. And uh, Geezer's uh, and myself were extremely perceptive to ghosts and things like that. And Geezer, we we thought we'd been there a day. He'd already spotted a couple of ghosts. So he's very Oh, in tune with um, things like that, you know. It's always been something we've all had uh, since we were all together, since we knew each other, you know. We've always been fascinated by things that are a little bit different or, you know. When Tony struck up, uh, the the atmosphere was, there was there was no dope. Um, there was no hardcore drugs. Um, just that we were just doing our usual thing, which was, you know, was, we, we always smoked it, you know. You know, but there was no, it was nothing like the Los Angeles, the tightness of Los Angeles. Um, we were back in the yeah. countryside and, uh, in England. When Tony just started up with the, uh, the start of the start of the Sabbath, Body Sabbath, Terry and I just laid in. It was just intuitive playing, intuitive playing. And it was fucking huge. It was absolutely enormous. And I, I just, it was, to me, it was like, oh my God, it sounds so fucking good. For me, that was a, a, a thoroughly enjoyable album to be a part of. Uh, it was also a time for me when I was actually traveling over to Belgium uh, to visit my wife, and that's when she became pregnant and we had our first child while I was making Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath. So it was a fruitful, fruitful year, you know. Uh, 
what I like, you know, I mean, just in Sabbath, early Sabbath, alone, I just love the way Tony would put in you know, those those superb jazz chords. So we're in the middle of Bedlam, and then he just like he would just move it and push it over, you know, and we'd all trail and just like, oh man, you know, it just sounded so good. Those are the chords that he's playing under the part where it goes, nobody will let yeah. you yes. know. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And I think one of the things that I might want to mention right now is that when we were brought up as musicians, all of us, we had to learn to play dynamically because there were no microphones. And so to enhance music, we had to learn how to, you know, be able to go low or quiet, build music up and so on and so forth. So we had to learn as kids to play dynamically. And you have a perfect example of dynamics at work when you listen to uh, Sabbath Bloody Sabbath and it goes into the to the softer melody there um, and into a you know a very nice uh, jazz jazz part and, uh, and again I'm really proud of our band that they can that we can literally play balls out and then drop out the dynamics I think are, are, are so important and uh, and I think Sabbath is a good example of a band playing dynamically. If if I may sing Bill's praises here, one of the things that I always thought separated Sabbath from all the other hard rock metal bands out there was the fact that Sabbath swung. And Sabbath swung because of, I believe, your playing, Bill. And I think on this album you get a song like A National Acrobat where that riff in the hands of mo- a lot of other bands could be so wooden but it just grooves so much because you're playing just slightly behind the beat there, and it just swings like crazy. Yeah. Absolutely. He, I'm glad you brought that up. Thank Go you. Go ahead, Monty. All right. That's one of the best songs on that record, National Acrobat. That's probably my favorite song on that record, believe it or not. Yeah. Thank you. Um, thank you. Bill, a question about the title track. At the time it was written, was Ozzy worried about singing it that high, knowing that it would be very difficult to do that song live later on? I don't know. You know, I, 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 really, I, I really wasn't aware of that. You know, it'll come in, and, and again, taking it from the original ra- root, roots of, 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 of who we are, so he'll come in and he'll hit it where he thinks it has to go. He's, he's fucking brilliant like that, you, you know, and he's spot on. He had to go there. Right. At, the, at that time, it's about the song, uh, so what happens after that is that's another, they're like, therein lies another problem, possibly. But the yeah, you just want to do the best you can. Yeah, yes. I, know, I know what you mean. Yeah. Like, who yes. cares about the live show? We'll worry about that later. Let's just make the greatest yes. song we can make right now. Right. Yes, exactly. So it's that, it's that kind of mentality. and Otherwise, there's too much thing to think about, you know. It's, it, was, it was typically coming from how we jam, because we would always connect up, and it's just like, oh, okay. You know, we would just crash into each other. So that's another, another good example of crashing in, as far as I'm concerned. I think what I, what I wanted to mention about the other song before... Uh, if I may, um, National Acrobat, it was so important to leave that wide open because uh, I think you'll see that the drums and bass leave so much room uh, to be able to swing and to keep it keep it all open. There's no temptation to fill anything up or or to uh, show show oneself, you know, as a drummer or to put a performance, a drumming performance in there. Everything is about um, supporting each other. And uh, and I think that that you know National Acrobat does that. I think it's a really cool song too. Absolutely. I, it actually brings to mind an interesting question, and I bet you this is a question, Bill, that you haven't been a- asked a lot. 
But I'm just looking at the sequence of the record. Obviously, it starts out with the title track and then National Acrobat, which is something you guys, a song you felt really strong about at the time, which is why it's second. But the question is, who would sequence the Sabbath records back in the day? Was it Tony? Was it the producer? Was it you guys collectively? Like, who actually came up with this, the running order for all these records? No, we, the band did. Right. The band did. Yeah, we'd all throw our, you know, we'd all throw our 10 cents worth in. And, you know, we'd usually get together with Terry. And, you know, and Ozzy would right. want it that way, and you know, we all did that. Yeah, good question. And of question. course, it was much easier to see. It was much easier to sequence records back then than it is now because you had side one and side two. So obviously, you wanted something as kicking and up tempo to lead off each side. You only right. had like eight to ta- eight, eight to ten songs to worry about back then. I know now when I'm trying to sequence CDs for a band, it's almost impossible when you're looking at 14 songs. Once you get past the first three or four, the rest don't even matter. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's yeah. just, it's so much, you know, that art of like sequencing a record, I think, has so been lost in the CD era where you got to think of one continuous 70 minute piece. How, you know, like, what order you put it in? Right. Definitely, right. you know, something that's hurt, I think. Point, yeah. Well, Bill, you mentioned the change uh, from, from uh, Volume 4 to Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath. It seems like it, it, it was almost a, di- a different band. Uh, obviously, Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath, apart from the title track, is a lot. I guess lighthearted. It's not as dark and doomy as your previous records. It seems, dare I say, like happier. Was it just more the mood that you guys were all in? You felt a little bit more comfortable, a little bit more comfortable to experiment in different avenues. How did that process from Volume Four to Sabbath Bloody Sabbath, particularly the writing process, how did that evolve so quickly? We were all together again in the, in the castle. You know, we were on top of each other. We were just, we were just having a blast. It was almost like we were on our holidays. I mean, literally, we were having so much fun and screwing with each other and joking. And uh, you know, we're very, we're very well suited when we're in the English countryside. All of us love uh, to walk. Uh, we're all extremely ha- active like that, you know. Um, and we all, we all walk for miles as well. It's amazing. The whole atmosphere was different. Uh, Tony would have the monster licks. We just literally did what what we usually do, which is we all stand by. I'd look at Terry. We'd try to work out a good a good orchestrational setting for Tony's chords, and uh, we would all jump into the mix on how, you know, if we didn't like something or let's change that or let's rearrange that. We were all inside all that kind of stuff. It wasn't just you know one person or two people. We always looked around to see what would work and what wouldn't work. Some of the things that we did do, to, we, we would run uh, a track. So in other words, if we had a piece, of, a piece that we really liked, sometimes we would play the shit out of it to tighten it up, to make it a bit better or whatever it might be. And that's something that we did in Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath, where we would literally play at full volume, murderous volume, and make it and run it. So, it, so it's like, okay, can this hold up? Because it's one thing making something and then going, okay, well, we'll record that. It's another thing rehearsing it over and say, can this stand? And we would do that. We would test it by, by running it and running it more than once as well. I mean, literally running, running it a number of times to make sure that it was stand-up, that it would hold, and especially would it hold live. Uh, but as I say, the arrangements, too, on it, I mean, particularly on songs like Killing Yourself to Live and even Sabbath, Bloody yeah. Sabbath, it, it's, it's like... Ten different riffs built into one song. Yeah. How did you guys arrange songs like that? Was that the whole band together, or would Tony come up with these riffs and rather than putting them in different songs, you said let's add it to this song? Tony would have a whole bunch of um, licks all the time. 
but sometimes Tony would have really good licks, but he didn't always um, know that he had a good lick. <laughs> I'm trying to say it in the most gentlest way. Sometimes we had to tell him that was a great lick. Sometimes he would definitely know it was a great lick. But there's other times when he would have something and um, it's like, oh, are you, what are you going to do with this? You know, it's like, it sounds fucking great, you know. And he said, well, I don't know, you know. And we would literally have to help each other along sometimes. And um, uh, Killing Yourself to Live, it's jogging my memory right now, it was actually a little bit difficult to write because we had the lyric, we had Killing Yourself to Live, and we had the melody, and we had the lyric. And it was like, oh, fuck, man. And it was so powerful, you know, to have that. And so it's like, how do you how do you support the lyric? How do you support that melody? So I know that there were some things where we had to uh, stop and start and try new things. There were times when Tony would be uh, alone by himself and he would work out pieces. But there were times when all of us were alone by ourselves as well and trying to find out what might work, what might not work, you know. And literally, it was just a matter of push and pull. You know, or Giza would come up with something that was, you know, brilliant or what have you. Again, we would we would pretty much work it out in a team format, but there was a long time for each individual. And Tony, uh, of course, you know, being the one that would have to, not necessarily have to, but would uh, come up with um, all of the changes or all of the different types of ideas. Sometimes you'd come up with a menu of ideas, and we would kind of go, yeah, that and that and that and that, you know. And so we, we'd have to we'd have to throw a lot of luck to each other, throw the ball back, throw the ball back, kind of deal, you know. Were you contributing anything lyrically to the material, Bill? Yeah, I, if I had ideas or if I had a, a title or a, or a line or anything like that, I'd try to throw it in there. Uh, sometimes it got thrown out. That's okay. I just threw it in there. What would work uh, for? Um, you know, for a lyric, uh, you know, like anything that might work. I was always trying to be uh, helpful with Terry to see if he might need anything or, you know, it's like, how are you doing with the lyrics or, you know, or Ozzy too. Ozzy was always throwing ideas and lyrical things, change things around, you know. So, yeah, that, that was always going on all the time. And and sometimes, you know, he would come in with ideas, with arrangements, or let's go there or, you know, let's not do that. And But we were all like that as well. We were all very iffy about our arrangements so we would all have you know input so the band was quite active in in all areas well should we move on to uh, my personal favorite record and probably my favorite record of all time sabotage was there anything else you guys want to mention before we get into sabotage or i i would like to bring up a couple of points as far as sabbath bloody sabbath one is what was it like deciding to do the orchestration on spiral architect uh i think it was just a you know, just a, a really good idea. I'm not sure who came up with that. It, I, I'm not sure if that was me. I know, I, I know that's one of my titles. It just seemed to work. It would, it would just, it was like we'd already done a little bit on on uh, Volume Four. You know, Snowblind. We'd done that little orchestra thing, and um, yeah, that's real orchestration on Snowblind. Yeah, yeah. The four piece uh, LA LA string section came in, and uh, on that one, I was I kind of played a quite a big role on that one uh, as far as you know, some of the notations and pulling that together. But uh, I'm not sure. I, it, it, that, may, that might have been me. I don't know. I, you know, I, I honestly can't remember. But um, it certainly worked. I mean, we, you know, I, I, I think it just sounds great. It just enhances the song so well. And Tony, had, uh, Tony obviously has all the notes. 
very orchestrational. I think Geezer and, and myself played. I really like what we played. We left it open, the, the nice big boom, boom, you know, uh, we, we did all that. So That song is so huge and, and absolutely the perfect way to end that album, that song with the orchestration in it. Yes, it's an, it's yeah, an amazing, you. amazing song. Thank you. The other thing I wanted to ask or just mention at least is the artwork on this album. Mm, the yes, artwork yes. at the time, I mean, when, when it first came out and you were looking at this on a 12 by 12 album cover, the, yeah. the, the artwork was absolutely stunning on it. Mm, thank you. Yeah. Did you get a lot of crap from it? Uh, was the label resistant to put it out? I'm just curious because that was probably, at that point, I don't remember an album cover that was, uh, you know, that offensive, so to speak. <laughs> yeah, I think I see that uh, as uh, the first metal artwork. I liked what we did on Black Sabbath and I liked what we did on Masters. I really liked that a lot. Um, just the black with the purple. And we really couldn't think of an album cover for volume four, so we put ours up there, you know, it seemed like the natural thing to do. But the But that's an iconic cover too, volume four. Totally iconic, that image. Yes, yes it is. Yeah. You know, it's it's good. I mean it works. It does, does work. It, yeah. you know, it's great. This album cover you're talking about is my favourite album cover, my favourite Black Sabbath album cover of all. Uh, I like the front of it, I thought it was fucking brilliant, and I love the back of it. I found so much peace looking at the back of it. And I hate the inside. And I wish we hadn't have done the inside like that. Um, that came, and it was just like, okay, well, this is what we're going to do for the inside. And it's like one of those, okay, well, yeah, okay, great, you know, whatever. What was in and the I, inside on the gatefold? I, I haven't had the album it was before, a, so I forgot. It was a woman in a coffin holding a cross. I think it was. Oh, I think, no. I think you're thinking that we sold our soul uh, for rock and roll. Yeah. Oh, I am? Yeah. yeah. In America, there wasn't a gatefold. It was just the front and the back. But the European version had a gatefold, and this is the one where you see the bedroom with the four-poster bed with you guys oh, naked yeah. from the waist up with, with your hands in front of your face. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't like that. It was, you know, it's like, oh, could have maybe done something different with that. I love the front yeah. and the back. I thought it was brilliant. Yeah. I don't recall I don't recall anybody really having any distaste towards it. Maybe they did, but I don't recall it, you know. It, the record stores didn't uh, object to it like the Kmart's. I mean, from that time, that was a pretty heavy uh, artwork for that time. Oh yeah, I, I wasn't. Uh, I just wasn't aware of, of the from the manufacturing point of view or the selling point of view. I wasn't aware of any of the um, of, of any of that going on. You know, I'm, I'm sure that there may have been, but I'm I'm just speculating. Obviously. If I may just throw in one personal thing here. And that, that is that 26 years ago, my wife and I walked down the aisle to the song Fluff. Really? That's great. That's great. That's great. Yeah. You know why it was called Fluff, don't you? No. We, no. We, had a, we had a dear friend, Alan Freeman. Disjockey. Oh, that's Fluff Freeman? Yeah. 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 And, so, and his name was Fluff. So, so we wrote it. And, you know, I mean, Tony, Tony wrote it. And Fluff heard it alan freeman heard it and he made it his own um he was he absolutely loved that record and he used it to open his shows and you know and he's just a real nice guy as well you know so wow I never so the, yeah yeah there's a connection there yeah well some more trivia <laughs> isn't the song who are you wasn't that the first song ozzy wrote entirely by himself yes yeah I think I read that that's song. another brilliant song do you want to hear the story or sure yeah yeah so I'm living at Field Farm with my wife in e near Eversham in Worcester, 
and it's about fucking seven o'clock in the morning, and we've just gone to bed, and he came screeching down the lane. I could hear him, you know, coming in, and he's got the car, and you, you know, he's just so noisy, you know. He comes in, he pulls into the courtyard, and he comes into the house, Bill, you know, it's like, oh fuck, you know, let's try, try to like, try to like not notice that he's there, and he's so loud, he's so loud. Anyway. Uh, I think he had Spock with him or he had somebody with him. And in the Phil Farm, we had a little studio. We had a little rehearsal room. Then in another room, we had, um, you know, we had all our things set up, you know, what have you, um, tape machines and all the stuff of the day. And uh, we're in the second floor in the farmhouse and uh, trying to get some sleep. Then the next thing I heard was, and he's singing in not in any room. He's singing in the in the hallway of the house, which goes up three stories. So it's like a really good sound, you know. And, he, and I heard this, and he started to sing to it. And I got out of bed, and I couldn't believe it. I couldn't fucking believe how good this song sounded. And I said, "Oh my god!" You know, he's <laughs> tumbling about underpants on, and you know what have you, and more information than you need and he was and he, and he laid it down he laid a rough down in there and it you know i i could hear the bass drums and the um it was so tribal you know it's like boom you know and it's just tambourines and you can hear the whole movement of it and it was just fucking brilliant you know he had it from top to bottom and he'd been working on it and it's like okay you know so we had to record the song i mean it was just completely incredible the only regret I've got with that song, and one day, one day, one day, one day, I might re-record that because the bass drum sound frustrated me again, in the sense that I, um, I really wanted to make sure it was like, boom, crack, boom, crack, da ba da 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 da, you know, and it, it's got all that jazz. I mean, it's just got the da da ba da da da. You are listening to the Shockwave Skull Sessions podcast. You're in the midst of the uh, great Black Sabbath discussion with the one and only Bill Ward, the legendary drummer from Black Sabbath, Monty Connor, the head of A&R at Roadrunner Records, and David Teds. For those of you not familiar with David Teds, he's been in the uh, music business for over 20 years. He's put together a lot of the great uh, catalog releases the uh remastered catalogs from bands like uh, grand funk queensrike uh can't heat as he talked about earlier and several several other bands the guy is a uh, encyclopedia of hard rock and metal knowledge we're going to get right back into the discussion i do want to mention that unfortunately about uh i guess about three or four minutes got cut off uh, when Bill started talking about the Sabotage record. So it gets right into the uh, album cover artwork, some uh, interesting stories there. So we're going to continue on and take this all the way to the end. we still got a well over an hour left, so some great, great stuff here. Of course, this is the Shockwave Skull Sessions podcast heard at RoadrunnerRecords.com. The discussion now continues with Bill Ward, Monty Connor, David Teds, and myself. So everybody just shows up fucking willy-nilly in the morning going, well, where, where are we supposed to stand? And we've got this whole mirror idea going on. You know, I can't really blame them. I took took a look at myself, you know. I didn't even bring a proper pair of trousers with me. But that was the album cover. I thought the, the concept of the album cover, Graham Wright had uh, put together. And uh, Graham was, uh, you know, he, he looked after my drums and he looked after me for many years. 
But uh, anyway, that's what that was, and it's just so befuddling. I mean, it's a great album, and we're sitting there with all this, this clothing on that just it has no association whatsoever with anything, you know, so um, I don't know. I can let you know that the red tights were my wife's. The checkered underpants that I'm wearing, if you look close enough at my ass, those were Aussies, and because Aussie had to lend me them, uh, he had to wear a long robe, and in that picture, of course, he doesn't have any underpants on. He's just got this long fucking robe that he's wearing. So, um, one of those disastrous mornings, which, uh, with a good concept, I thought, the, I could, with the artwork, had some, had a good concept, but break, I just still laughed at this. I break up looking at Tony. <laughs> Tony, Tony's shirt, man, it just fucking blows me away. But of course, so, the music was in. The music was in. Oh my God. Definitely. To me, like the most underrated of all the Sabbath records. I agree. Yeah, yeah I, I, it's a good album. I, I think it's a really good album. I mean, like the Red and Megalomania, two of the longer tracks you guys had ever done. Yeah, uh, those were troubling times for kicking us. things off, and it, I'm sorry. I was I saying mean, those were troubling times for us. You know, um, the Ritz was. Um, we were we were really going through a, a real bad time with, with our management, and uh, of course, just like most bands, unfortunately, in this business. As I'm sure all you guys are well aware of, we, we, you know, we made the wrong choice. You know, we had a manager who uh, was uh, was dishonest. That is so, man, a, a dishonest manager. It's hard to believe. Yeah, I know, I know. And every it seems like every band has to go through this fucking. It's like you're almost like a badge of honor these days. As a matter of fact, I think a lot of things are getting cleaned up, cleaned up now in today's management. Back then, it was man. So the Ritz, uh, I thought, again, Giza and Ozzy, I thought, had written absolutely brilliantly uh, on the Ritz. And, absolutely. Uh, we, that, was, that song was like, you know, if you think in terms of Black Sabbath being an anthem, that same type of unison that, that brings us together with Sabbath, the Ritz had a similar, uh, a similar kind of core feeling to it. It was like, we got hurt and fuck you. And that, that's, that's basically what the Ritz is. Especially with the just the the, the incredible uh, Tony licks on the front of it, then the whole band comes in again, and you know it's just great. And the way that Ozzy spits it out, and, and just the way that he just you know just allows all the, all those lyrics to come out, is just phenomenal to me. He's probably my favorite track on that album. Oh, at one of my favorite all-time songs. Yeah, that track can scare the shit out of you. The way it comes into with the like, there's like a synthesizer or some kind of rolling noise, and the whole track yes. kicks in. You jump out of your skin. <laughs> yeah, well, you can hear good. the spite in it, and, and particularly, I, I think that's Ozzy's best vocal performance ever on that on that entire album. Uh, particularly in the writ, I mean, you could really hear the anger and the spite from Ozzy and the whole band. I mean, it really comes off. And some of the lines on there, like, I despise the way I worship you. Absolutely brilliant line. You yeah. grow up worshiping, yeah. you know, your manager or your boss or your teacher or whatever it may be, but you despise the fact that you, I, I just thought that was just a brilliant, I mean, so many brilliant lines in that in that entire album. But I think yeah. the fact that you guys were going so, through so much turmoil really made that album just absolutely one of the heaviest albums ever recorded. And it just really clearly shows mm, thank you. the emotion. Thank you. Brilliant, brilliant album. Yeah, yeah we were we were uh, kicking back. And I don't mean in, in the sense of kicking back, as in American kicking back. Right. No, we were literally kicking. Yes, literally. Yeah. Well, the diversity, again, on that, I mean, just... 
unbelievable amount of diversity and the way you arranged all the songs together from just the bombastic heaviness to hole in the sky you know you mentioned about tony's classical playing which clearly shows in that little 45 second you know don't start too late instrumental and then right into kicking it into symptom of the universe which i think is one of your best drum performances just unbelievable that album is just magical i mean every song on that album is just incredibly diverse and i i just could go on forever raving about this record but uh what what are you guys' thoughts on it (laughs) monty and david as i said i'm just i'm surprised that it's not really talked about kind of in the same breath as the first five records for me, I'm I'm more into it than Sabbath Bloody Sabbath just because it's a heavier record. But to me, it's like it's definitely the most underrated record in the entire Sabbath catalog. Um, it's just it's absolutely on fire. Bill, it almost seems like on Sabbath Bloody Sabbath, maybe you guys had felt you'd mellow too much, so you wanted to come back with something super heavy. Like, was it a conscious effort to come back with something as heavy as that, or it just was a natural progression? I don't recall it being um, a conscious decision. You know, I just remember the opening notes of Symptom of the Universe and the obvious place where we would have to go. That's how simple it is for me. I don't recall a lot of the, the things that surrounded it. Uh, to me, when I, when I first heard it, I thought that it was such a big step forward because I perceived that there was almost like this, what we now call prog rock kind of thing, whereas there was a lot of keyboards in it, right. and, and especially with writ and megalomania that these songs were eight nine minutes long each and they were real epics and i thought you'd sort of gone above and beyond what you'd done before in terms of arrangements uh, was that something you were conscious of for myself not really not personally i know that we were stepping out you know i can when rick came into the picture that was an important time because we've always enjoyed uh rick and we always you know we were, we were always in and out of seeing yes all the time you know on tours or whatever you. Oh, did, did Rick Wakeman? Yeah. Rick Wakeman? Did he play on that album? Yeah. Oh, I, I was completely unaware of that. Wow. Mm-hmm. Did you know that, David Monty? No, I didn't. I yeah, I remember. I, 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 did, I had forgotten it, but I do remember reading that once. Yes. Yeah, I think he was. I, I might have. Uh, I might be mistaken. Is Rock and Roll Doctor on there? Oh no, that's uh, Technical Ecstasy. Ah, okay. I know. I know Rick played on that. Um, yeah, and he and he plays on uh, Sabbath Cadaver off Sabbath Bloody Sabbath, but I was never aware he played on Sabbath. Oh, you know what? I could be talking out my ass right now. Um, <laughs> Tell me um, about the song Superzar, how that came about with the choir. Is that actually, did you actually bring in a choir into the studio? Yeah, yeah we brought in the whole lot. That's, I'll tell you what, that's a great example. There you go. Superzar, it's one of those things that, he, that Tony was working on in the corner. Again, you know, in the Mono Valley. And, he, and, I, and I, I just heard this. And that was it. It didn't have any more. It didn't go anywhere. And I kept saying to him over and over again, I said, you know what, Tom? That sounds really fucking good, man. You know, that sounds like it could be a really big production or a big song. And he goes, really? You think so? You know, he's like, and he said, I don't know what to do with it. I don't know where to go with it. I said, I think we really ought to make that into a song. So finally something happened where we took it seriously, you know, and we started to look at what he had. And then, you know, the vision of, of, of hearing it with a choir or uh, with drums, you know, I, the first things I heard with it were timpani, you know, so I played around on the, on my tom-toms and kind of like, you know, put the t- where the timpani would go. And it, it just grew from there. 
it was something that just it came about uh tony found all the rest of it whatever it was supposed to be that was lying dormant somewhere in his head and that's how that came about and i wanted to i definitely wanted to put um i put i put vibraphone on there i put timpani on there i heard it as this enormous kind of almost doom laden kind of uh oh chanting big ceremonial thing and we all did we all did i mean when geezer put his bass down on it it was like oh fuck here we go well you sure captured it because that's exactly how it sounds <laughs> yeah. yeah and it turned into superstar and also not only did that but it also turned into our opening song before we went on stage right, right. and then we played superstar and i did all the bells i put the bells on there and you know i just everything man it was uh i think we started that one I think we recorded part of that in England, but for some reason I think we ended up in um, we ended up in Belgium on that one, where uh, I I think I just finished putting the bells on. I, I can recall being sick. Uh, I got a real uh, bad uh, alcoholic overdose right after putting the bells on that. So, but I, you know everything was fine. Us was with me, so we we pulled through. But, um, that's what I can remember. Of that I'm really searching hard on these tracks right now. A couple of the tracks, I know you did live a lot, like I mentioned, uh, Hole in the Sky and Synth of the Universe, I think, was on uh, Don Kirshner's, and you did the uh, the Decade of Black Sabbath, you played those songs. And I know nowadays, uh, physically, those must be extremely difficult. For, for one, for Ozzy to sing in that register of Hole in the Sky, and for you to drum on Synth of the Universe, it, it must be very... Is, is that why it's kind of dropped out of the sets? I, I know it's your live sets, you don't do anything off the Sabbath record yeah we collective with we love we love uh symptom of the universe for me before i go anywhere near a stage if i know i've got to go on stage three months in advance uh, i train down mm -hmm. I, or rather i train up i have to be up to at least walking 10 to 12 miles every other day and i walk in sand i walk on cement and i do uh, multiple amounts of push-ups uh and i train really heavily so that when i get to uh, drum ready, what I call drum ready, I would have had to lose off, uh, I usually have to drop about 20 pounds, then I'll drop the other 7 or 8 pounds while I'm on the tour. So I do, it's a drastic uh, weight drop, uh, but that's, but I can still play, uh, I can still play inside, you know, what I have to do, you know, since from the universe, whatever it might be, I, I can still play those, but I have to be what I call stage ready and, uh, you know, because it's, uh, it's easy to put the weight on now, you know. So I, I literally have to train up every time we go out on tour. I'm very disciplined, and that's how, I, that's how I'm able to play. Those songs, unfortunately, symptom, we can't do any longer. You know, Ozzy's voice uh, has a tough time getting up there now. So nevertheless, on all the songs, all of us remain really, really fit. You know, it's like it's more like the YMCA Keep Fit Club rather than a Black Sabbath rehearsal. Everybody really... <laughs> Everybody really keeps themselves in good shape, you know. We have to, if you're touring, you've got to be in good shape, so. Bob, if I can point out that on the very last tour that Bill did with the band, for the encore, they started with the opening riff of Symptom of the Universe and yeah. took it all the way up to the vocal part and then went into Paranoid. Yeah. Right, Bill? Yeah, bit of a teaser. It's frustrating because we wanted to, we do love the song. It's always been a great stage song and so you know we want to play you know it's just something that you know it's like oh god you know it's it comes out of frustration you know not with ozzy it's nothing to do with Oz or ozzy as a performer or anything else 
it's just stuff that we like to do uh, live. It's just we like to, you know, just lay in and, and do the job, you know. So we have those little things that come up every once in a while, and and uh, you know, we throw them in on the stage and go, "Come on, let's do it," you know. So I, can, I was going to say, I can tell you, Bill, from a fan's point of view, that when I go and see Sabbath, even if you don't do a full song, but if you put sections of certain instrumental sections of certain songs in there. All the fans appreciate the shit out of that. I mean, it's very, very okay. cool when you guys do something like that. So yeah. I, would, I would encourage you, should the opportunity arise again, to continue doing stuff like that. Yeah, that's cool. I appreciate you saying that. Well, should we move on to a technical ecstasy? Oh, I didn't know if we covered it. I didn't know if we covered it enough in sabotage. I guess if you guys think we have, then oh, we could talk. I, I could personally talk for ten hours about that record, <laughs> but I don't want to take up like, time. What, what about you guys, Monty, David? Is there anything else uh, about sabotage? No, I think we're so, covered. All I can say is that I, I've got to absolutely echo what Monty says. It's the most underrated album in the whole Sabbath catalog. And I, second, okay. I third that. <laughs> I, I do yeah, like the blow. I, I do like the blow on the jug too. By the way, that you and I. Oh, do, I oh yeah, yeah. That's you singing it, right, Bill? Yeah, yeah. So that was technically your singing debut before, um, I guess you sang. uh, Yeah, you sang. It's all right. Yes, it was uh, me and the Prince of Darkness having some fun. I love that. I remember as a kid hearing (laughs) that on the end of the record. I loved that. I mean, what a happy way to end such a hardcore, (laughs) heavy, dark, mean album. And then you hear this blow on a jug, and you're like, wow, what is this? Was that an actual accordion? Was that you playing the accordion there, Bill? I'm playing the piano, and I was just blowing the jug. It was one of our little party pieces that we do, and somebody left the tape running, and we were fucking around in the studio, and... So it ended up on an album, and it had been a talking point for a, for many years now. But uh, we just—it was one of our little things that we do: blow on a jug. When I was younger, I always thought the lyrics were "Be like me and blow on a joint." <laughs> I, I, when I found out it was "Blow on, Blow on a Jug," I was like actually kind of disappointed. I was like, "Yeah, oh man, I like blowing on a joint better than a jug." That's that's his life. <laughs> Well, with that said, let's move on to Technical Ecstasy. Who wants to start that one out? I love the album cover. Monty Connor, over to you. Yeah. I love the album cover on that. The two robots having sex, I thought, just perfectly summed up the album title pretty damn well. Um, I didn't really care for that album cover. I thought it was a little bit... It just didn't fit Black Sabbath to me. Right. But, uh, I got just a little funny personal story I can stick in on this, because, as I said, I discovered Sabbath in 1977, you know, 78, so Never Say Die was the first record that could come out as a new record. You know, back then, money was really hard, so you couldn't even afford these records. And I would always go to the record store and look at Technical Ecstasy and, um, you know, just dream about what it was about because I couldn't afford it at the time. It would be many months before I could pick it up. And for some reason, the song title, You Won't Change Me, always struck me as like, it it wound up not being a super heavy song, but it looked to me like it was going to be a really heavy song. So I swear this is a true story. I went to bed one night and I had a dream. And in my dream, I went to the store and bought Technical Ecstasy and came home and put that song on. And in my dream, I was hearing it, the song play, and Ozzy was singing. And I basically wrote my own Sabbath song because it was a new Sabbath song that I'd never heard. And it's playing in my head with lyrics and everything in my dream. So it's like I basically wrote my own song. (laughs) It's lost to the annals of history somewhere in my head, but that was always a pretty funny story that I had basically written my own Sabbath song in my head. I was looking forward to hearing you sing it right now, Monty. Nah, I don't think so. <laughs> to me, this record was a pretty big departure for Sabbath. Um, yeah, You know, you had stuff like Rock and Roll Doctor, which was very, uh, let's say, unheavy metal. Um, 
mm-hmm. a track like All Moving Parts Stand Still, which has... Yeah. David, what's that instrument that we were talking about in it that you could really hear it? It comes to... There's some oh, weird yeah. sound in that. You could, hear, you could hear it when they played it live on that broadcast that was on, um, you know, the vault, Bill Graham's vault. Oh, yeah. Remember that uh, live version on there? I never even yeah. knew, Bill, that you guys played that song live, but David and I found a live show online where you guys play that song. Oh, really? Huh. Yeah, all moving yeah. parts. And it's awesome. Wow. It's totally awesome. The only song I remember you did live from that was Dirty Women, and have done yeah. pretty often. Yeah, Dirty Women's great, great live. Absolutely. Yeah, that's become like a long-standing live classic from that record that you guys did years yeah. later. Yeah, and that's the one where, you know, Tony still gets to perform a little bit of a solo. And have recently, uh, we've we've just kind of changed it around yet again. It, a lot of that with Dirty Women, when we do it live now, I've really tried to pick up some of the uh, older blues playing that I saw a lot of the guys play back in the 60s and stuff that I, you know, like to play as well. And so uh, I feel when we play that live, I feel that really latched on to Tony. It's like a trip down memory lane for me in the sense of uh, there's parts that we'll come to uh, that will um, will require a, what we call a press roll. Again, when we when the dynamic is way up and then we, we just bring it all the way back down. And I like to bring it down with the, under a cushion of a press roll, which is a, an execution that would be... Uh, it's, it's just it's jazz again, you know, and it also reminds me of the old blues players in the mid-60s from the, from the clubs that we played at in England. So in that sense, it, it's a, a kind of romantic a little bit, you know. It's also, uh, that's, that's one of those, uh, when we were talking about being fit, on that, uh, at, the, at the ending of Dirty Women, I'm pushing 26-inch bass drums. That's a lot of air to push, you know, and uh, that's one where um, I really have to lay in. I'm, I'm laying in pretty hard right through the last four minutes of the song. You know, I, I always feel good energy, though, when, when, we're, when we're up there doing that. I like, I like the placement and the pace. I thought it was a pretty good song. And it's always it's always been a good stage song. Done down well. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely an interesting album. Definitely a lot different. I mean, the thing about your albums, particularly from volume four on, each album seemed to have been a drastic change from from the following album. And again, I, I that's how most of the classic bands you talk about, Zeppelin and bands like that. You know, Black Sabbath was every much diverse as a band like Zeppelin were, but you never really got the actual credit. Uh, for being such a, a diverse heavy metal band, um, tell us how like a, a song like "It's All Right" came about with you doing the lead vocals. I think that was one where we where we really didn't have enough material. You know, we we were over in Miami, I think, at the time recording that one, and it was ours that it, that was pushing on that one. Do, do, do it's all right, man. You know, so put it on there. It's a good song. So you know, I was really reluctant. I kind of I actually went through quite a bit of personal pain behind that because I didn't feel feel like it was right you know because I, you know I mean I, I the setup that we have is Aussie Sings you know so so I felt a bit strange but at the same time you know we were doing different kind of odd bad things things that uh, you know we're just like picking things out from the air or picking things that were not necessarily associated with any particular groove and so uh, it's all right ended up on there um, it was it was nice to do. I mean, we had a nice session and everything. Uh, Tony 
really brought the song up with his guitar solo so he'd made it into a, a nice cake you know i thought we got a pretty good track it's pretty even is there even footage uh, of you performing that song yeah i was gonna say that was when you first did i think sabbath very first did promo videos that was when promo videos this was obviously pre-mtv but you know don kirshner's and other places were were playing what as, as you call promo videos lip sync videos and you did one for it's all right and rock and roll doctor correct Bill? yeah i think so yeah. It's all right, push to be a single. You know, a lot of drummers then were doing vocals, and the most famous, of course, was Beth with, uh, you know, uh, Peter Chris singing the vocals on the Kiss song. And they, you know, yeah. that's one that kind of yeah. pulled them into the mainstream. Did you feel that song had a chance of breaking Black Sabbath into, like, the radio market? Oh, not at all. No. No, I, we were just writing, probably since volume four, we, all of us had been writing separately. We all had our own musical collections of songs and, you know, there's all kinds of ideas and, and things like that going on. So It's All Right had been around our family, you know, the band being the family, for quite some time, you know, we just, it was just lying dormant. But it was as simple as I was just saying, you know, put that on there. You know, there was no kind of like thought to say, oh, you know, let's go in this direction or what have you, you know. Yeah, I'm just, I'm trying to remember all the circumstances right now, technical ecstasy. It seemed like it was, uh, I think it might have been hard going. Um, for some reason, I, I feel like some of these things might have been hard going. Uh, Backstreet Kids, I thought, was a, a fabulous track. I thought that, that one worked out real well. It seemed like it took us ages to do um, all moving parts, stand still. We had some of the basic stuff down, but, you know, what to do with it, you know, what to do with it lyrically. And I think we had to work on some of these songs on technical ecstasy, you know, to bring them up to a good performance level. I'm a little bit uh, uh, not as sharp, maybe, on remembering all of technical ecstasy. When, when you were singing It's All Right, Bill, at the end there, where you go into the falsetto, initially yes. it reminded me of the, the Beach Boys. Is <laughs> that your idea? No, my influences go back a little bit further than that. You know, I, I remember all the early rock and roll stuff, Platters, you know, Roy Orbison, Everly Brothers, yeah. all the guys. You know, I'm, I'm just right back in where rock and roll was, you know. So I'm coming from a rock and roll place, and those high falsettos are typical of, of what would, one would call rock and roll, especially back in the day, you know, the bebop and... Uh, you know, that kind of music, you know. It's yeah. that, that same kind of association. Did you feel this record, though, when recording it, Bill, that it was going to be... Because it always was kind of the outside yeah, Black really, Sabbath yeah. record when you talk about the first decade. It was a little bit... Uh, and I think it, probably sales-wise, too. I don't remember as big... I don't know how it sold, but I don't remember it being as... Uh, making an impact as, as your previous records. But it was a little bit on the outside. Did you kind of... Was that kind of planned? Or, again, was it just something that just came out like that? I think it was just the state of mind of where we were all at, you know. I, I think at this point... What what's really important is to remember that the band has been uh, continually touring for years and years and years, and that we were moving into different directions. We were, you know, by now we we had families, you know, we were settling down. We even had houses, and there was a we had a life that was starting to emerge. Um, the four of us were not necessarily together as we were in the early days. We were together all the time in the early days. But by the time we did technical ecstasy, we were still very much with each other. We didn't see each other necessarily all the time. So there was some separation going on. Not, not bad separation in a negative way, but it was just the natural course of things. This was a, a veteran band 
that had uh, already done so much all over the world. And so I think that, uh, you know, we were just all in different places and not necessarily on the same page when we did uh, Technical Ecstasy, you know. But I think what stands out the most is coming away from the album for a second, the big showstoppers at that point on stage were Dirty Women, Backstreet Kids. When we op- when we played Backstreet Kids, you know, and opened that up, it was just like, man. It, I mean, it completely kicked ass. It was so good. And, uh, you know, so there were some real showstopping songs that came from Technical Ecstasy that fans knew about, but uh, are probably not that credited from an album point of view. True, true. Well, I mean, you look yeah. at songs like uh, Hole in the Sky and Backstreet Kids. I mean, that almost started, uh, I wouldn't say thrash metal, but the speed metal. I mean, it was, you know, Sabbath went from this doom band that was real slow and heavy and doomy into this, you know, real almost aggressive. Uh, it, it almost was borderline, you know, the beginning of thrash metal. Yeah, I, I understand what you're saying. I, I certainly had fast movement going on. But, uh, you know, I mean, Tony's, again, you know, was moving to choppier prizes, uh, very high speed. You know, I'm, I'm just pleased that I could keep up with him, to be honest with you. You know, cause, uh, that's that's quite a challenging track from a drummer's point of view. There's a lot of double bass drum work in Bastard Kids. There's just a lot of, uh, you know, where I, where I have to be, I have to hit with him. I have to be with his chops and so on and so forth and still maintain the bass drum work. And Goose has got a got such a, a great bass part running through that song. So it, make, it makes as a drummer, it makes my life a lot easier. Now, now I want to mention at this point. I mean, I, I I remember I was too young to go to Black Sabbath shows, but my cousin, he's the one who turned me on to Sabbath. He was giving me cassettes of the band way in the early days. The first album I actually owned was uh, Sabotage. When I remember the day it came out on my 11th birthday and my mom freaking out because she looked at the album cover. <laughs> going, I'm not buying you this, but uh, I ended up getting it. And, and from there on, I always kind of followed what, uh, you know, the tours, I would always look in the paper and, and see the bands you would tour with. And I remember it was real controversial. I think it was that tour, or David, you could correct me. Maybe it was Never Say Die. It was Black Sabbath and the Ramones. Remember that? No, I was gonna. I was gonna tell Monty that all I saw for this album was like Monty's wet dream because um, the opening act, at least in Detroit, was Black Oak, Arkansas. Oh, yeah. I know. At least in LA, you did a show with the Ramones, and that was when punk and metal were like at each other's throats. And even though Ramones was more of a street punk band, it wasn't like the British punk. It created a lot of uh, a controversy. But my cousin actually went to the show. He said it was an amazing show. Uh, again, I was too young. Do you remember that show, Bill? I can't remember it. I, I honestly can't. I can. I can just vaguely when I'm when when it's talked about. I can vaguely remember remember uh, where that was at. You know, there, there, I guess there was friction, or I didn't. I one of the things that I didn't like about punk was the attitude that they were better than every every other band. You know, right. and that came from a few individuals. You know, but that you know, I felt like telling to fuck the cells. You know, but um, <laughs> it, you know. But, but for the most part, I think the punk uh, movement was uh, was extremely important uh, to rock music. It, I mean, you can you can hear it in today's hardcore music for sure. So I mean, you know, it's like a very 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 important uh, time. But it, I just didn't like some of the arrogance. You know, it was just it was antagonising. You know, we'd seen enough arrogance to where we came from. You know, coming from the Birmingham and Aston, we, we, 
everybody everybody knew arrogance you know not only that but sabbath went through two years before where we'd you know talk about making contact with the audience i mean shit man we, some sometimes on some of these gigs there was more time spent on the floor fighting everybody than there was actually playing on the stage i mean it was a common common event common event in 1968 1969 was that in america or in england because i know england it, was everywhere really? everywhere was it like yeah, bikers everywhere. or like uh, who did uh, I, I know you kind of attracted the you know counterculture i guess kind of hippie crowd but you also had like yeah. a lot of bikers and what was it between them or what was uh yeah, it was just give us usually with the security oh yeah no it's usually with the security or some of the kids if somebody was beating up on somebody and I was, he wouldn't. I was a jump off the stage and beat the crap out of him. You know, or, or Tony jump off the stage. I used to throw me drums at people. You know, there's a lot of stuff. You know, just crazy. It was that stuff. You know, it was like the mosh pit. You know, of 1970 or 1969. But a lot of bands were. I mean, the Who. There's a lot of bands that got that went uh, real crazy. So, you know, we've no disrespect to punk, but punk kind of claimed that as their own, and, and you know, and they're mistaken. I just wish they'd give a little credit to the bands that were doing it before they were doing it, you know. But I think that mo a lot of, a lot of the punk bands had some real taste and were great players and said some really important stuff. So, I, but I think he, punk was is so important to today's music, and that's where I really validate punk music. Yeah, well, I, I agree with you there, Bill, with uh, what you said about uh, how a lot of people uh, don't realize some of those early metal shows. And I think a lot of it, because a lot of it wasn't really filmed then. I mean, you didn't have the MTV and whatever. And you and David could probably know, because I'm sure David was probably in the middle of those. David probably had a few <laughs> drumsticks thrown at him, right, David? <laughs> no, 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 no. I was, I, I, was ki I was kicking back with a joint somewhere over on the side of the, you know, the, side of the auditorium, just enjoying everything. Hell's Angels had their favorite songs, you know, but, you know, I mean, they, that's what it was like. That was the climate anyway, you know, they, they were with the Stones, they were with most of the big bands that came through, you know. So we had, there's all kinds of people and, uh, most, you know, most of them were just banging heads. I mean, for me, and for, I think for, for Sabbath, you know, in, the, in 1968, we saw the, the white jacket and the turtleneck sweater turn into leather and, you know, t-shirts and, we saw the whole thing change in front of us. We saw clothing change literally in front of us as we showed up every night and things became different, you know, and the whole headbanging thing, you know, started back as early as 1969, you know, back in the in the northeast, uh, everybody was down in unison, just every fucker banging their, you know, all the hair and everything, man. And it was great. It's, it's, so, it's so fantastic to play to music where everybody's just... You know, just bobbing their heads, just like the whole thing's rocking, you know. It goes back a long way. And well, definitely. You see a lot of the early footage from uh, England and, and even in Germany and France. Like I said, the, the 1970 France show, when they when they scope the audience, it's, it's like crazy. I mean, you never see like the American audience. It, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm sure a lot of people were drugged out and whatnot. Uh, but just insane to see like some of the stuff happening in Germany and France and, and England. It seemed like it was much different than perhaps it was here in the States. It was more riotous sometimes. It, it, like early days in Germany would be... Uh... Uh, less predictable there's some there's real some in europe you there is unpredictability now i'm not saying that the, 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 by saying that i'm not saying that the united states doesn't have predicted uh, predicted predictability but the united states was more uh somewhat controlled possibly because of the the presence of, of so many police officers 
in Europe anyway, there's always been a, uh, a vanguard of, you know, more outrageous or uh, more to the right or to the left demonstration where, um, you know, you didn't quite know if something was going to go off and explode, you know. There's always that thing, especially in some of our earlier uh, touring, you know, through, uh, especially in 1969 when we were, you know, we were doing a lot of the festivals in Europe. You never quite knew which way it was going to go. German audiences have become quite volatile, whereas American audiences were a little bit more, they were crazy, crazy motherfuckers. In America, there's no question about that. My heart goes out to them, and I love every single one of them. But they're a little bit uh, less prone to, you know, uh, a whole lot of violence at a, at, a, at, a, at a concert. And so, but sometimes, in, especially in the earlier years, there was a di- definitely a little bit of difference between uh, American and European audiences. Well, I figured we'd, we'd uh, hit uh, Never Say Die. And then I don't know if you wanted to touch on at all uh, uh, Heaven and Hell, Bill, because I know you played on that. If you want to end it with that, uh, it, it, it's up to you. I don't know if there's anything else any of you wanted to add uh, about you know technical ecstasy or before we move on. I don't think so. Um, I had a bit of a struggle, you know, I mean, to- talking with you guys. I was really having to think about technical ecstasy. I, I had to try to remember some things, and I... So I had a little bit of a struggle with that one. But um, we can move on. I don't know whether I want to talk about heaven and hell, to be honest. At least possibly not in this in this interview that we're doing. If you want me to, of course, I'll, be, I'll do that. Uh, Bill, actually, we planned on doing this as, as the first decade. We were going to end it at with the Aussie era, so to speak, with yeah. Say Die. I think that would probably be yeah. most appropriate. I just didn't know if there was anything you particularly want to add. But no, if you don't want to do it, I think it's best we leave it at the uh, uh, Never Say Die. Yeah, because right. then it's the original band. It's more respectful to ours, you know. And, right. You know, he's a man that's very close to my heart, you know. I spoke to him just yeah. I spoke to him just the other day. Actually, I spoke to him yesterday. He's just oh god, swear, just unbelievable. Do you talk to Ozzy about like the, what he's doing with the variety show and stuff like that? Does he sh- kind of share that with you, or when you talk, is it mostly just about like the old old days kind yeah, of thing? No, we talk about right now. You know, we talk about what's going on with both of us right now. We usually talk about the kids. He talks about his kids all the time. You know, we just talk about how we how we're doing, how you know how we're really doing. Uh, we don't we don't bullshit each other, so right. you know we just we just have a good rap. You know we we talk all the time. You know it's, I think he called in yesterday about noon, but we had a nice rap. We rap for about half an hour. So how many kids do you have, Bill? I got three. We're actually working on a fourth. We're uh, we're in the foster adopt program, and uh, my wife and I are licensed uh, foster adopt. You know parents. We're actually looking right now at a particular child that we've been looking at for some time. So we, there might be another one on the way pretty soon. Are any of your kids in music? Yeah, two of them. My my oldest son, fucking brilliant, and uh, my what daughter. My daughter's been working on uh, an album now for a couple of years. She's like me. It's a bit, a bit slow. My son, uh, <clears throat> he makes an album in in three months. He's done. He moves on. Next one. Next one. No, okay. None of his work has been de- developed yet, but uh, he got so he he just blows me away. Blows me away. Is he a drummer too? He plays drums, but he's a guitarist, singer, keyboard player. He plays about five, six different instruments. His production is incredible. But he plays drums. He's been playing drums since he was a baby, you know. It was hard not to yeah. in our ass. So, you know. Is his music available? Yes, I could I could actually get you some things. I, I would, I'd have to call him first, but I could get you some things, uh, a couple of things he just sent over to me, actually. 
Yeah, yeah, we'd love to hear it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Oh, that's very nice. Very nice. Well, Monty, why don't you kick off Never Say Die since you said this was the uh, first Black Sabbath album you bought? Yeah, it was the first album I bought as a new record, and they had premiered the record in New York City on WNEW, speaking of radio, of course. A guy, a famous DJ named Dennis Elsis, and the two songs he premiered were the songs Never Say Die and A Hard Road. So yeah. Those were the first two tracks I heard from the record, and to me, those are still my favorite songs. Those are just the two standout tracks. Obviously, Never Say Die is a complete Sabbath classic. To me, it's like as heavy as Backstreet Kids, but just a little bit more epic and a little bit more vintage Sabbath sounding. Um, mm -hmm. And then Hard Road, not the heaviest song in the world, but there's just something so, I don't know, something very soothing about that song to me. I can't really put it into words. Um, I've come to also really appreciate Junior's Eyes over the years. Oh, yeah. Johnny Blade was a track I liked a lot at the beginning just because it was so heavy. It was like the yeah. heaviest track on the record after Never Say Die, although that's not a track I really go back to much these days. I'm more about, like, Junior's Eyes, A Hard Road. And, of course, you know, Bill, Swinging the Chain was one I always liked. I just thought, you know, it was a heavy-ass track. And, it was the, you know, the only heavy song you really sang in Sabbath. Yeah. Um, mm. But, you know, yeah. I've, read a lot about, I've read a lot of stories about the making of this record, Bill, and, you know, it seems like Ozzy was kind of, like, half there and wasn't showing up and was, like, kind of had one foot out the door already. So it seemed like, from what I've read, a lot of this stuff was kind of, literally written that morning you go rehearse it in the morning in the studio and cut it at night and you know some of the songs wound up being instrumentals and songs that you sang on simply because ozzy wasn't around yeah he was this was a difficult time for us you know when we were especially you know when we did junior's eyes that song was like really 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 important to him it took a while to to put that together we we did a, we actually coming back to field farm we went back to field farm where we where i my wife and I originally lived, and um, we did uh, most of the mapping out and the rehearsing of, of Junior's Eyes at Phil Farm. You know, we had all the grooves and everything, you know, and uh, I, I thought it was really, really good what we were doing. And it, and it just seemed to fit the day. It worked, it worked for wherever we were all at, you know. And um, But he was having an incredibly difficult time. He had a, a major loss in his family. And was trying to recover from that. So yeah, there were a few things that went went topsy turvy for a while. I think that's what Never Say Die is one of those albums again, where everybody, including Ozzy, we all, you know, overcame. It's like uh, how can I explain it? It's like the gig. People say to me, well, you know, what was the best gig that you ever did? And I said the one, the one gig where we were in the middle of nowhere. We hadn't seen our home for six months or nine months. We'd had no food for two or three days. We were all sick with the flu. And then somebody says, you're on in 10 minutes. And we would get up literally so sick and so ill, get up on stage and play our asses off and come back and then collapse on the same couches that we'd been lying on prior to going onto the stage. And it's that kind of effort, it's that kind of performance that this band has. It, it it has that. Well, that's what that's how I would equivalise with um, with never say die. I think it was one where it's like, okay, you know, we need to overcome whatever's going on. We need to we need to move forward and make this album work. You know, so there was a, everybody jumped in. Everybody brought, brought ideas to the table. Everything was uh, was like so busy on this album. Just prior to this, I, I don't I don't know whether you're comfortable talking about this, Bill. But just prior to this, I mean, it's well known that Ozzy had left the band, and you briefly brought Dave Walker, who was in Savoy Brown, into sing. You actually started to move forward on that, right? Yes, we did. We asked David to come in. You know, 
we'd seen Dave on the road over the years with Savoy Brown, and we knew Dave from way back as well with the, um, I've forgotten the name of Dave's original band, he was with his brother, the Red Caps. And the Red Caps in Birmingham were like a really, really cool band in the 1960s. So inevitably, Dave had a total blues bass voice, uh, really nice guy, you know, great, great singer. So it was natural to think, okay, well, what are we going to do, you know? And nobody wanted to really have the choice. I mean, even Dave, you know, knew, he knew it was an uncomfortable situation. But he came over, and he was he was a soldier, you know, and he he played the game, and he and he was great. But you know, uh, he did, we did a TV show, and we did do Junior's Eyes, and it was very it was very very strange doing Junior's Eyes with, uh, you know, because that was Ozzy's song, that was like that was Oz, you know, and it, you know, pretty much about his father, or some parts of it were about his father, and uh, so it felt strange, and I, you know, and in the end, I, I, I let Dave know, I said, I don't, you know, we can't really carry on, Dave. And, was there footage yeah, available? Oh, sorry? Actually, you said it was a for a TV show. Was there actually footage of him singing that? Uh, the BBC might have something in the archives. Yeah, it was a yeah. BBC well, TV show. Well, I got that show. on CD, that performance. Oh, oh you do? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Now? yeah got all his, he's got everything <laughs> here, hasn't he? Between <laughs> David and Mark. I don't know why he's got a record company. <laughs> but um, that was the story with Dave. I mean, you know, he came in and... Ozzy rallied to the flag, you know, I can remember sitting down with Oz back in the Mono Valley again and uh, we were trying to come up with a title of a song. I can remember he'd come in with his scratch paper, I'd have my scratch paper and we were sitting down on the patio where we'd sat so many times before over the years, you know, down by the river, and, uh, River Mono. Between us, we, you know, we got the title, Never Say Die, and so we got that much at least, you know, and yeah, it was, we had to squeeze it out. Tony, Tony's uh, some kind of a hero for me, you know. He, he, we were up in, uh, we did Johnny Blade actually in Toronto, and uh, Tony started out with that riff, uh, and um, again, you know, when me and Tony, we come from, we come from the old days of the, of the Shadows and Apache and, you know, the Ventures, and you know, so we're from that era. You know, so a lot of our early influences were early rock and roll. And when he when he started up with that, and I and I just I, I fucking flew to my drums. We were in this enormously cold theatre. I got to my drums and I just started putting in that drumming lay that's already that you hear today. And it reminded me so much. It was just so good, so powerful. It reminded me so much of the um, of ourselves when we were kids, when we were just sixteen years old, man, and we used to play at the jams. You know, and uh, and so that's where that that thing comes from on the top of on the top of Johnny Blige. You know, there's some there's some nice pieces on the on this album. Now, when you recorded this, Bill, I know you used the uh, Rolling Stone mobile unit, and you probably spent more time on this record than any other previous Sabbath record. By far, the the most produced record, I would say. I mean, again, a brilliant record, and again, very instrumental, uh, songwriting and arrangement wise. How do you feel the production played a role in in this uh, record? I know Ozzy had said in the past that he thought it was too overproduced and there was too much time spent in the studio. How, how do you feel about uh, the recording process and production? Yeah, I thought it was. I, I actually it was quite hard work because there were some times when Oz was not available. You know, so um, on this particular album, I did a little bit of ghostwriting. You know, hoping that you know to try and encourage us to you know for some ideas and what have you we both penned out uh, originally when we were in toronto we both penned out johnny blight you know 
brought Johnny Blade, made Johnny Blade into a character. And all, like I said, all of us were, were really, you know, <laughs> trying to do our best to cover all bases. You know, one of our guys was injured, so to speak, and it's like, okay, let's do whatever we can do to get this job done, you know. It's, it's where we were, and, and uh, so in that sense, I'm very much at peace with it. You know, I mean, the feel on uh, on Hard Road, the feel on that, uh, I have to give credit to the rhythm section, and that doesn't mean I'm not giving credit to everybody else, but the feel that me and Giza put underneath Hard Road, I, I just love, I just love that. We hadn't done a rhythm like that since Hole in the Sky, so we put that feel on Hard Road, and then those bass drums just, just drop in, exactly where they're supposed to go and it, you know i just love the dynamic again the shape of the song and the way that it moves it's very good you know i mean i can hear it in today's music i can hear only only in today's music way more uh thrashy and way more loud but uh back then i could hear those just the dropping in of the and the feel of it you know so yeah, there's a lot of really nice nice spots for me on this album. Yeah, great record. And very influential. It, it was one of those records, I remember buying it. It was, it was such a departure from what you would expect from Sabbath. And it was one of those albums that really took a long time to grow on you. And it keeps us, which which is a sign of a great album. It wasn't really immediate with me when, when I got... I mean, certain songs like Never Say Die and Johnny Blade and, and Shockwave was was pretty immediate but then it, you know the others it, it took me a while to grow on me How, was that with you too david and monty or was it pretty immediate with you guys it was pretty immediate I, I for me from... but i find just as i get older and my taste mature you know when you're a young kid you want everything fast and heavy and i remember at the time i you know albums like technical ecstasy and never say die weren't really heavy enough for me you know like i wanted the heavier stuff but as an adult and someone with more mature tastes I can go back and get a lot more enjoyment out of those two records than I did as some 17-year-old kid that wanted to hear Metallica and Slayer. You know sure. what I'm saying? So I think those albums have really held up well for me, especially. And uh, to me, you know, I, I can enjoy them more than I did back when they first came out. David? Yeah, for, for me, this was this was a much less of an immediate album than the albums prior to that. But sometimes I find that the albums that you get immediately. Sometimes they don't last as long as the ones that you have to listen to three, four, five times to really sort of get into and find a way in. And this is one of those albums for me that once I had to keep listening to it and listening to it and really explore the nuances of the album. And once I got that, this became, you know, just an absolute must-have Desert Island disc for me. I, I, obviously, I want to ask Bill about the last two songs on the album because at the time, after listening to, you know, going through the sequence and listening to Over to You, and then yeah. Breakout to come in with the horns and swinging the chain with the whole jazz feel and yeah. Bill singing. I, tell us about those two songs. Well, I did some shadow work on, on Over to You in the sense of uh, some melodies and some lyrics and things like that. Mm. And uh, we were we were actually really up against the gun as far as uh, the finishing time. We were supposed to start an American tour in Milwaukee. I believe it was Milwaukee. The very next day, and I can remember still being in the studios uh, trying to set up um, a nice vocal that could work where Ozzy could, you know, try to throw in the ball, so to speak, and he'll throw the ball back. Or he'll throw, it, or he'll throw all the ideas out, and he'll, just, and he'll just give him some, you know, he'll find his own way, you know, he's quite capable of doing that, you know. Sometimes you just have to throw the ball one way or throw the ball back and it just works. 
But I can remember on Over to You, you know, having to get ready. Uh, well, I was in the studio, actually, until 8 o'clock that morning. And then uh, Graham, Graham Wright, who was with me, said, Bill, we have to get a plane, man. We, otherwise, you know, we ain't going to make this opening. We ain't going to get to Milwaukee. So that was tight, you know, just jumping on an aircraft, flying to America, and then having to be ready to go onto the stage. Um, but that's how, that's how tight that was. I think that with the beginning of um, Swinging the Chain, I like what we've done. In hindsight, I consider that it's completely off the wall. You know, you know, it's something that uh, definitely is not part of uh, what we would, you know, what we would call metal or heavy metal. Or I, I just liked it, but I think I'd, I'd lost the core of the core of where we all were. You know, if you like. Um, but yeah. I know I was really big on that. I was really big on that brass section. And we all, you know, settled down to it. I think when Ozzy first heard it, he, I think he said he fucking sucked or something like that. God bless him. <laughs> it is such you a heavy song, though. I mean, it's got that jazzy feel, but you listen to it now, it's heavy in a whole different way. But, I mean, the guitar. Oh, yeah, it's very heavy. And the, your vocals sound so heavy and dark. I used to love that track as a kid because that was one of the heavier tracks on the record to me. And I love the whole end part where it goes into that heavy riff yeah. and you're doing yeah. that, like, chanty vocal with it. I love that. Yeah, on that one, you know, I really did want to do that song again kind of like it's all right you know we we needed to finish this album you know tony had some nice chops you know and i, I it was a shame to see those just go by the wayside you know kind of like oh you know this is good stuff but it's like we're not doing anything with it so you know that's how the song came about we literally wrote it i think down in the monmouth studios and I do. I, I I like the fact that we put the big band on it. I forget. I forget the name of the uh, the arranger who did that. But we, you know, we, all of us had the idea. We, you know, we went. We made sure that it's like, yeah, we want. This is what we want in the band. You know, we want it to be fucking heavy. You know, we want it to be very heavy. That was Will, oh, Will Malone, right? But, yes, it was. That, that, that was, was Will Malone. Yeah, he arranged the strings, and he and he and he was able to pierce. He he, he got it. You know, it's like, oh yeah, I got it. Okay, Sabbath. Yeah, brass. Okay, you know. So we got it, you know, because we didn't want any, you know, like Ted Heath on there or anything. No disrespect to Ted Heath. It had to be, we'd have to be, you know, for all of us, I'm sure, you know, in that in that kind of confine. Tony had already written out, uh, you know, an incredible blackboard arrangement already. So, you know, it's just like putting that fucking orchestra on the top. So I think I think everybody did great with that. I, you know, I think it's a great piece of work. In hindsight, maybe it ought not to have been on that album, but I think we were just doing the best we could at that point. You know, we were coming to our end. Who was John Elstar that played the harmonica on that track? Was he a friend of yours? Um, oh, God. This is one of those fuzzy areas again, right? <laughs> yeah, it's a fuzzy, yeah. What was his name again? John Elstar, E-L-S-T-A-R. Is that the harmonica on Swinging the Chain? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I thought that was me that played that. <laughs> I, this wasn't this wasn't your pseudonym. I don't know. I I um, oh shit. I don't. You know what? I don't know. I I so I guess I, I play harmonica badly most of the time. That's probably why we probably got a harmonica player in there. Um, yeah. You know what? I can't. I, I for the life of me, I don't know who played harmonica on there. No. I always thought it was Ozzy because d- doesn't Ozzy play on the Wizard on the first album? Yeah. 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 Ozzy plays harmonica as well. Yeah. yeah. That's him on the on the Wizard, right? Yes, it is. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's it. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> just to close, I think "Swinging the Chain" is the perfect closing for an album like "Never Say Die." That's just so unique and different. And then to have that song just close it in just a 
unexpected way. I, I, I think that's what adds to the brilliance of that album and to Black Sabbath uh, in general. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, but w- <laughs> why don't we kind of end it here? Um, let's just end with if you guys want to add anything before we do end it. I was wondering uh, uh, that you guys might have wanted to talk about heavy metal music in general. Or do you want to leave that for another time, another place? Or I am, Bill. I, you know, I'm very fascinated by the fact that you're so completely up to date, like like a 16-year-old teenager on this stuff. I think it's just amazing. I think it's awesome. Yeah, I mean, you can probably recite more Demu Borgir album titles than I can. <laughs> well, I don't know about that. You know, these, you know, some of the spelling, they, 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 they definitely throw me with their spelling. I, I think that the, the transition from, uh, you know, just from uh, Metallica and Oz, you know, in, in the 1980s, and then, you know, so many other bands that started to, to show up you know, I, I, I'm just so high on the fact that we have just so many good bands now uh, that are just playing absolutely outstanding music. For me, it's like a, a new lease on life. And just, you know, when you, I think it was you that said earlier, Monty, about, you know, you wanted to hear uh, something uh, loud, you know, when you, you know, when you were 17. And uh, I, I too have, I too have those imperious urges one of the songs that just blew me away a couple of months ago when he first came was uh, Opeth's uh, Hair Apparent and right. uh, I don't know if you guys have heard that track but the way it comes in is just like fucking unbelievable it sounds like the end of the earth coming in <laughs> and um, and that's what I like I like to I, I miss that I miss that with Tony and with Giza I miss it a lot it's uh, you know it's like oh god and I really miss playing with the guys too but the you know, I'm not saying that we won't play again, but right now I, I, I do miss them when we're not playing together. But uh, just just things like that, you know, or Celtic Frost, or, you know, when I see here the depth that these guys go into, it just blows me away. So it's, I think that uh, the metal music of today is so fucking healthy, and it's so diverse. I mean, it's just going everywhere now. And uh, it, I'm just blown away. Do you listen on CD, or are you into downloading? What are you, what, what I, are you I don't, as far I, as, like... I listen on CD. And I, I, I don't download for personal reasons, but, but I, I, everything, I just go out and I buy the CDs just like a fan would. And I just ask around and I talk to other people and, you know, hey, Bill, did you check out so-and-so or have you heard this? So word of mouth, you know, and, uh, you know, and I get it, like, I kind of, I know that I'm really privileged because I, you know, I, I get to see all the bands when they're on stage, but I get to go on stage with them and watch them, you know. That's something that's uh, really incredible for me. I was going to ask you, Bill. I know uh, last time we had met, you were in the studio doing your your solo stuff with Straws, and you were in there yes. producing. And you obviously have a lot of knowledge about the recording studio, about recording. Have you ever considered uh, uh, producing any new bands or um, getting involved with some of the new bands, either songwriting wise or production wise? I thought about it, and um, I've done a little bit. I've dabbled a little bit with that. I'm working on a on a hardcore album of my own right now. As a matter of fact, this very morning I was going through some of the uh, plans on it. I just a couple of people that you guys know that I'm hoping will come and uh, guest. They're real metal players, and I'm hoping they're going to come over and come and play a little bit on, on some of the newer stuff. So, But I'll keep you posted on all that, you know, as well. But the but I have. I've dabbled in the, you know, dabbled with people and have gone in and have kind of made some uh, changes to the Sonics and, you know, what have you. So I dabble around, you know, I, I'm, I'm always in and out, poking my nose in and out of different things and stuff like that. 
but I haven't come to terms with actually producing a metal band. I'm still trying to get my my uh, my own feathers and my own uh, you know my own self in order. You know, I think if I can have good metal performances that I've done, then I think I can you know at that point I can maybe uh, you know move on and see what I can do with other bands. But I would love to write metal metal songs for other bands as well. I, it's one of my favourite things to do is to write, and I'm continually writing all the time. I, I don't stop. It drives me crazy. I do remember, Bill, when I was in the uh, studio with you doing the interview, uh, Joey from Slipknot, and th- this was quite a few years ago. He was in yeah. the studio there and uh, a huge, huge fan of yours. Uh, were you? Was he actually working with you in the studio at that point? Did he do uh, some drums on that? I think, I think at the time, I think Joey just popped down, actually. Talking about being fans, I mean, I'm a huge fan of him, you know. Is he, I can't believe what that guy does. No, you know, I mean, Joey's just, you know. Uh, in fact, most of the guys in Slipknot, they, they're just, we're just good, really good friends, and uh, I just love what they play, and I'm a major fan of Slipknot. Major. I'm a fucking, I love the band. I've probably seen them play live at least 20 times. I, I, wow, that's as know. many times as me. <laughs> no, so, Bill, when you were growing yeah. up, like, you know, obviously you were talking about certain Sabbath songs before, like Backstreet Kids being challenging yeah. to play. They were a little bit faster. And then, obviously, you must have heard, like, in 1983 when Kill 'Em All came out. You know, and, and a song like Motor Breath on that record at the time was, like, the fastest thing ever. The same way that, like, Motor had Ace of Spades in 1980 right. was the yeah. fastest thing to date. Could you have ever, in a, in a million years, imagined the speeds and like stuff like Slipknot? Like, could you have ever seen that coming that it would get to that level? And can it go further than that at this point without being a drummer? I, I, I think it can definitely go further because these guys are developing it. I have every confidence in the in the in the new drummers, the way that they're emerging. And uh, yes, I I can't see why it can't go through the ceiling. You know, it's already through the roof uh, anyway. Right. But um, I think I saw a little bit of it because. There was some of that stuff I was touching on myself, and uh, a lot of my grooves, you know, um, like for instance, when we did um, my first solo album, had a, a lot of real fast pace bass drum work on it. You know, there was one that we did, the Mobile Shooting Gallery, and uh, that one's just got, you know, 30-second note bass drums, and, and we did we did that back in 89, I think. So, so I, yeah, you can see the, you can see the, the movement coming along. However, mm-hmm. in the last, uh, say, the last eight or nine years, I, I've been completely blown away, totally blown away uh, by where the, what they're doing, especially rhythm sections, what the bass is doing, what the drums are doing, and how they, they've, you know, it's just like, oh, my God, you know. So, no, to me, it was, it, it was a huge surprise. I think it's great. When I listen to Motorhead, I listen to that, and it's like, okay, you know, and I feel like I can, I can still jump in there and play Ace of Spades or, you know, something like that, uh, yeah. you know, or even Gung Ho, you know, uh, with Anthrax. But, you know, I'll, I'll listen to um, uh, Strapping Young Lad, uh, Gene, Gene Hoglin. Yeah. I look at Gene, I just go, holy fucking shit. Holy shit. He reminds me so much of, uh, of the very early days with John Bonham because yeah. Gene seems very light on his feet and light on his touch. Yeah. And so was Bonham. What's crazy about Gene, and he, this is also, I don't know if you've ever seen Raymond from Fear Factory play, but both of these guys are amazing drummers, but they they don't look like they're working hard when they play. 
So yeah. if you've seen, if you've actually seen Gene play, he doesn't look like he's putting any effort into it. Yeah, whereas you take a guy like Roy Mayorga from Soulfly, or who's also in Stone Sour, and you watch that guy play, and he's just a total showman. Anyway, it's just it's funny that you mentioned that about Gene. Yeah, it's he is effortless drummer, when Gene plays. It looks yeah, like it's effortless. totally effortless. Yeah. And Bill, to go back, uh, just uh, so you know, I've I've known Gene when since he was about 14 years old when he first started drums. And I'll tell you, oh, okay. if it wasn't for drummers like you, Gene probably wouldn't be playing the way he does today. So it's your drumming and your style of drumming that influence, I would say, you know, 80, 90 percent of these uh, extreme metal drummers out there. Absolutely. Wow. wow. Yeah, I'm, I'm honored that you would say that. I mean, you know, a lot of these guys now, you know, they're my friends and, you know, I support them and support their, you know, who they are and, you know, who they are as players, you know. But, you know, whenever whenever I get a chance, I'll try and see Gene play whenever I can or or anybody else when any, when the guys come through, you know, if we get to all the all the uh, gothic bands coming through, I try to pop in and see them if I, if I'm not working, you know. So I just think it's such a great climate today, and I think uh, I think I think we're really fortunate to have, you know, that this didn't die, you know, this stayed alive, and not only did it stay alive, but it stayed alive and got better, you know. I mean, it's just there's so it's just so much good stuff now, so versatile. I mean, a lot of these bands, Lamb of God's new albums drive me fucking nuts, man. And I can't find I can't find a bad track. I'm not really looking for a bad track, but it's like every, everything is so on, and I'm like going, my God! Yeah. Have you heard so, the new Mastodon record? Yeah, I just got it. We played it on the last radio yeah, show. Yeah. Yeah, pretty cool stuff, right? Definitely. Oh, it's, it's fucking magnificent. I think we played three tracks already on the on the radio show last month. Mastodon. If you're, and, if, can you I, hear your radio show on the internet? I think so, because my yeah, wife should, uh, checks in. Yeah, well, I'd love to be able to hear that, so maybe uh, we can ask Lisa for some information about how to hear it. And that Mastodon drummer, he's all full of jazz. He reminds me of Mitch in the old days, Mitch Mitchell. Well, you know, Bill and Monty, if you want, we should uh, maybe do, if you're up for it, Bill, we could do some a future podcast where you guys just talk about new bands, because uh, you... Uh, no, yeah. a lot more than I do. <laughs> and maybe you and <laughs> Anytime I, you're up for it, I'd love to do that. Bill. That would be great. Yeah, I, I would definitely want to be on on that. I, I would, I would uh, be honored to be a part of that. But before we end, though, I, I just want to end with with saying uh, now. Now you keep talking when talking about Black Sabbath, like it is still current. Do you find yourself getting back together with Tony Geezer and Ozzy? and recording some new material anytime in the near future? I think if the climate's right and everybody feels comfortable, I, I would I would love to uh, be part of an album or continuing to tour. Yeah, they're very current in me. I never talk to them in past tense uh, They're uh, because they're here and now. I mean, I know that Tony and Terry right now are running around with Rane, you know, on Vinay, but, you know, life... It still carries on, you know, so I, I do miss playing with Tony and I miss playing with Terry, you know, and obviously I miss playing with us, period. So, you know, I would love to uh, always, always be able to do something with them, you know, so yeah, it continues on for me. I, I have a tremendous amount of hope there. All right. Well, David, I, I, are you still there, David? I am still here. <laughs> I, I am still here. Well, I, I, I wasn't going to comment about all the newer stuff since since you guys are much more hip to this than me. And uh, like Clint Eastwood said in Dirty Hair, a man's got to know his limitations. <laughs> I think I'd let you guys go off on that stuff. But, yeah, I'm still here. And, and, Bill, all I can tell you is that we would love to hear you play again in that context. It would Nothing would please us more. Great. Yeah, yeah, me too. You know, I mean, I'm very, obviously very passionate towards them all and, you know, 
and I still love playing. Yeah, thanks, guys. Oh, oh, is everybody pretty much done for now? Or yeah, I think we're, we got it covered. Well, there you go, gentlemen. That was absolutely incredible. That was the one and only legendary Bill Ward, along with the great Monty Connor and David Teds, talking about Black Sabbath, the early years. Wow, I don't mean to pat myself on the back, but I got to say, that I believe is one of the greatest heavy metal discussions ever recorded. That was just an incredible conversation and just uh, uh, many many things go out to bill ward uh, such i mean as you could tell just by listening to him uh, such a uh, great great guy uh and not to mention one of the greatest drummers in all of hard rock and metal music and uh, just such a terrific guy i can't give enough thanks to a uh, bill and uh, also thanks to monty and david for being a part of this conversation well that happens to be the longest shockwave skull session podcast today hope you enjoyed that that was about a two and a half hour discussion there so uh, i'm going to go ahead and cut it off here i want to thank you guys all for the support and thanks for listening and please uh spread the word man spread the word on the podcast this is of course the shockwave skull sessions podcast heard at roadrunnerrecords.com slash skull sessions if you go to the roadrunner records main site you can just uh, go to a skull sessions under the artist page Check out all the uh, great stuff they have there at RoadrunnerRecords.com. And also, be sure to check us out on the Classic Metal Show. For uh, scheduling, you could go to the uh, theclassicmetalshow.com or cmsradio.net. And you can check out the uh, schedule when the Shockwave Skull Sessions is featured on that great show. And be sure to support those guys, some great, great guys at the uh, Classic Metal Show. So with that said, man, we're going to go ahead and close this. Once again, thanks again. Send those emails. I really want to know what you think of this podcast. So send them in to me at shockwavesskullsessions at gmail.com. Thanks again for supporting, and we will see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Shockwave Skull Sessions podcast. Subscribe and listen to all episodes by going to our pages on iTunes, Spreaker, YouTube, Spotify, and more. You can listen to all other episodes and access up-to-date information and news on the Shockwave Skull Sessions podcast by going to our website at www.shockwaveskullsessions.com. Email all comments, questions, and suggestions to shockwaveskullsessions at gmail.com. New to Medicare? Go to MyHealthPolicy.com. With MyHealthPolicy.com, you can compare plans from some of the nation's top insurers. Start now to find a plan and apply online. MyHealthPolicy.com makes it easy to find a Medicare Advantage plan in your area, including plans for $0 a month in plan premiums, low out-of-pocket costs, and expansive provider networks. My decision, my Medicare. MyHealthPolicy.com. Hey, this is Jill from the Container Store. Oh. Is there something wrong? I just thought a virtual designer would be a cool robot. I could do a robot voice if that helps. Maybe. Hi, I am Jill. Let's design. Nope, absolutely not. Regular voice, thank you. <laughs> yeah, I'm not good at impressions. Enjoy free virtual in-home closet design and up to 25% off closet systems with the Container Store's custom closet sale. The Container Store, where space comes from.